VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, so pretty frosty old morning here in and around the city of St. John's. It was zero degrees when I jumped in my vehicle this morning, and it was chilly last night. You know, one of those fun questions that people will share and answers to on the 1st of November is how many did you get? How many trick-or-treaters? 37 for us. Down from last year a little bit, and we live in a school neighborhood, so maybe some of the cold temperatures kept people in, but it's amazing. Certain communities in and around town, Paradise CBS, for instance, you see people tweeting out around social media that they had like 350 which is amazing. I kind of wish we had that many children coming by the house for a trick or a treat. Well, I guess a treat. Anywho, uh, there we go. Yesterday also set a record for the amount of snowfall on Halloween. 11 centimeters, apparently, at St. John's International Airport. Doubles the record that was set back in 1975. And, of course, the questions will be asked. Are the highway depots and municipalities fully staffed up, all the equipment ready, because here we go. You know, there was comments yesterday about highway travel in the snow and the slush that wasn't cleared. And you have to ask the question, are we ready because it is win- it's winter. It's winter now. Anyway, and there'll be lots of folks hauling their studded tires up out of the basement or out of the garage to get them installed today because today is the first day you're allowed to do so. I imagine the garages will be busy. All right, the country's bidding farewell to one of its absolute sporting legends, Christine Sinclair. Yesterday, they beat Brazil at the Wanderers' Grounds in Halifax 2-0 to even up that friendly two-game match with Brazil. It's going to be four games on her uh, farewell tour playing Australia later in the year, culminating in her hometown of Burnaby, BC, we think. Christine Sinclair first played for the national team when she was 16 years of age. She scored a pair of goals in her second game out. She scored more international goals than any man or woman in history. 190 goals and 329 senior appearances. Now she's 40 years of age. She made the grounds last night. She came out in the 78th minute, much to the delight of those 6,000-plus people in attendance at the the Wanderers' grounds. Been to the World Cup six times. Of course, disappointing not to get to the knockout stage last time around. Olympic gold medalist and has been an absolute linchpin backbone of the national team uh, their program for decades so congratulations christine had the opportunity to meet her one time real thrilled anyway team guju bounced back at the pan continental curling championships in Kelowna curling club three and one now they open up the tournament with a defeat at the hands of korea eight five but they're Back on top, near the top five finish to qualify for the Worlds. Looks like they're in good stead for that. Open up two matches today. First one against Chinese Taipei. Okay. Let's get into it. Oh, the fall fiscal update. It's standard practice for government officials, ministers of finance, when offering these updates, to start with the good news numbers. Right? Just steady as she goes. Let's dig a, a little bit into some of the other numbers. Right off the bat. Borrowing at $700 million, net debt up about a billion dollars to $17.1 billion. Those are the numbers that kind of get buried, but when in fact they're the lead numbers. Deficit around $154 million, down from $160 million. But some of that comes with over $200 million in forfeitures from oil and gas companies walking away from their prospects offshore. 
So it could have been a lot worse had these oil companies proceeded. And we do know the government still has a pretty firm reliance on revenues from the oil business. Last year, around a billion dollars. Of course, Terra Nova sluggish to get back on track, so production is down. But 200 plus million, I think it's 204 million dollars, simply because of forfeiture. So that's not good news if we're simply talking about revenue stream for the provincial government coffers. When it comes to borrowing, and one reminder on oil, the forecasted budget in 2023 on oil was 86 bucks a barrel, with the Canadian dollar trading at about 75.75 cents against the American greenback. We're in good shape right there, but production is down. When we talk about borrowing, and of course with the Bank of Canada interest rates and an increased cost in servicing our debt, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that for the third time the government has contributed money to the future fund, this time $130 million. As much as it's nice to have money stowed away for a rainy day, but as I said to Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning, rainy day is today. It's raining today. So how do we put money in a future fund when we are seeing an increase in cost to even just service the debt? So not really sure why that is a good idea insofar as the thought process from the government. But anyway, expenses up about $200 million. Wages, basically, interest rates, debt servicing, collective bargaining with the four units that happened this time around. Inflation. Okay, there's a few confusing things regarding inflation, but anyway, 3.5% in this province, second lowest in the country. Household spending is up. All good things, but the number that jumps off the page for me, because we've been talking about housing a lot, and justifiably so, housing starts forecasting for 2023, 899. It's a 34.8% drop from the 1,379 housing starts last year. Compare, contrast those numbers with the very real numbers that we've got from the Canadian Mortgage Corporation that we need to build 10,000 units a year for the next six years to meet the forecasted demand. So there's some rosy things when we talk about employment rate. And yes, household spending is at 4.4%, uh, 4.4% outpacing inflation. Mm, but just compare some of the rosy picture painted to the concerns and the questions and the reality of life for so many people, whether it be with housing or grocery prices or everything under the sun. So the government says we're on track to meet some of their intended goals in the most recent budget. But when you look at what's going on, when you hear from our friends and family and community members, the struggles are mighty and they are very real. Anyway, there's a lot of numbers inside that as usual. You kind of get bombarded with numbers. There will not be that $500 check to uh, ease the pain for the cost of living. You know, that was aimed at the middle class, whoever th those people might be. And, of course, that check, it didn't amount to a huge total, nor do I think it had a massive contribution to inflation, as some people say. But when there was all these pots of money that were tailor-made for different segments of society and different corporations and not-for-profits, what have you, there was a segment of the country that said, where's mine? And that was the so-called middle class. And so that was, that's what that was all about, that 500 bucks. Anyway, it's not coming this year. You want to take it on? We can do exactly that. Now, the city of St. John's, remember, it's not that long ago that federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, who was the former minister of immigration, and there's distinct ties between housing and immigration. We can't put all the blame on immigrants because that's just not what's going on necessarily. So the city of St. John's, they were told by the federal minister he was 
you know, not as ambitious. I think the quote was, the proposal from the city falls short of the ambition I'm hoping to see. Okay, so initially the city of St. John's applied for $2.8 million to build 91 housing units. They've gone back to the drawing board, and as Mayor Danny Breen said yesterday, challenge met. Okay, now applying for $18.5 million from the $4 billion housing accelerator fund, the intention to build 475 different units here in the three-year period. There will be some neighborhoods that might be concerned with how and where some of these units will be built. It's going to take a variety of things. You know, we've had a long time reliance on single-family dwellings. Now we're going to have to see things like in permitted zones, backyard suites, there's going to be fourplexes, you know, micro units, tiny homes, modular homes. It's going to take all of the different housing options out there to satisfy the need and to be a part of this 475 unit plan for the next, next three years. So, when people would like to see their neighborhood remain the way it is and was when they purchased their home, things are going to change. For all of us property taxpayers, regardless of where you live, when we don't have a focus on density and we simply want to build out, and the reference to urban sprawl, it comes with a cost. It really does. You can control an awful lot of costs when you build densely because you don't expand and build the roads and put in the fire hydrants and put in the water and put in the sewer and have to plow the roads and maintain. It all comes back to your own property tax. So as much as it might feel like some neighborhoods might become much more congested than we're used to, you know, I guess you'll just have to weigh what's important to you. That bit of additional congestion versus more money out of your pocket to accommodate building out. So there's a lot to consider inside that, but the city of St. John's much more ambitious with this recent application. And yes, there's a lot to it, and we can talk about it this morning. Just one second, I'll get a sip of my coffee. We're back. All right, what's this scribble here? Oh, of course, the city's not building the homes. They're going to the private sector for private developers, naturally. Then, of course, the same question we've been asking, whether it be with the province's five-point plan and incentives for developers to get involved, build, for instance, uh, apartment buildings, what have you, which comes with a whopping big cost and importation of all the supplies required. Where's the math for, at the end of the builds, in the variety of different options that will be entertained, what kind of price points are we looking at? And what kind of affordability will be dealt with on that front? Big question there. But good ambitious plan anyway at this point. Tony Wakem, the official leader of the opposition, the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port, yesterday in referencing a story that was published in allnewfoundland.com, terrific website, they do really good, comprehensive, deep dive work, so bravo to the work that they do there. This is about the bloody Upper Churchill. So in Quebec, they talk about it all the time. They talk about Gull Island all the time. And in this province, we've been, or the politicians anyway, have been keeping their cards very close to their chest. Now, nobody but nobody wants to jeopardize negotiations. We don't want to release any commercial sensitivities or upper hand that we may have. It looks like we might be in a better negotiating position than in years past, where our option was to go to court to lose every single time. So yeah, we probably are in a better position. There is going to be a required political victory here. No matter what party is in power, no matter how you slice it, we need a win on this front. We're not entirely sure what's on the table. So whether it be redress for the past decades, whether it be the next 17 years and maybe more money's flowing to this province versus the province of Quebec, whether it be extension or what it might look like 2041 and beyond, we're not entirely sure, but you have to imagine all of those concerns are being discussed. Hydro-Quebec needs the Upper Church of Power. 
15% of their energy portfolio is directly related to the massive hydro project at the Upper Churchill. So Mr. Wakem, what he's suggesting is we should have a fulsome debate in the House of Assembly when they arrive at a deal, which makes sense to me. Some people are out there even talking about referendums. Now, referendums are kind of a messy way to govern, but with the need for a political victory, and even before said debate and or whatever a referendum may indeed look like, it would be nice to know what we're talking about. It would be nice to know where our negotiating team lands because there is a lot on the line here, not only with dollars and cents, but there's that whole historical issue regarding relationships with the province of Quebec. The biggest bully on the block regarding utilities in the country is Hydro-Quebec. Where are we? In addition to that, and this would not jeopardize anything as far as I can tell, even if we just know what 2041 means, in some people's minds, it is absolutely the panacea. Everything will be rosy and golden from then on. That's probably not the case. So we've actually struck a provincial committee to look at the scenarios associated with 2041. We don't know what their findings are. So it's kind of hard to know if we're in a good spot, a bad spot, a better spot, a worse spot, when we're not entirely sure exactly what's going on. And again, I don't expect a blow-by-blow update from our negotiating team. I don't expect, nor do I want, nor does anybody want, the government of Newfoundland to appease our worried and curious minds by jeopardizing negotiations. But Mr. Wakeham's not wrong. There has got to be public input. There's got to be a debate on the floor of the House of Assembly because not only in our collective best interest, but the government of the day badly needs a political win on this front. And if it was the Tories, it'd be the exact same sentiment coming from me. The political win, not necessarily for their ability to curry favor and to get votes, but for the future of the province, the understanding of where we are or where the opportunities lie. So anyway, if Tony Wake was interested in broaching that on the show this morning, we can do it. You know we can. All right, I thought yesterday was the day we'd get a, a decision from Minister Bernie Davis, Minister of the Environment, or from Minister Parsons regarding where we are going with World Energy GH2. I guess that's going to be today. You know, after whatever's going to happen, and you've got to think it's a green light for the next stage of the assessment process, they've got 18 months to deal with the environmental assessment issue. Even though Federal Minister Gibo says no need to trigger further federal intervention, inside the next 18 months, you know, a few things. So I try to read as much as humanly possible, just in an effort to try to be informed, maybe sometimes fall short, but we do our level best. Inside the submission from World Energy GH2, 4,000 pages long, 50 days for the public to get involved, to read it, absorb it, and offer their questions or feedback, it was daunting. I remember going through it at the, at the initial stages going, you know, after about a half hour, I th- said to myself, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. It was pretty technical. It was pretty overwhelming. So consequently, did people even have a legitimate chance to voice their concerns? Look, for folks who are all in economic upside, job creation, expanded tax base, you know, in, in its infancy, developing markets, whether it be internationally or potentially domestically, but I don't know. Who's had the opportunity, even outside the 50-day window, to really firmly understand what's going on here? You know, there's a big project in play, 328 turbines in a very small footprint on the Port of Port Peninsula. And one thing I don't think we've fully wrapped our mind around is if you drive up the southern shore or you're down in Ramia and you see the wind turbines that are currently in existence in this province, they will look like toothpicks when compared to the absolutely enormous wind turbines that are here. Now... 
you know, the need for bigger and hopefully better and hopefully more environmentally sound, and there's still many questions to be asked, they're taller than the Confederation Building. I mean, just think about it. I mean, that's absolutely massive. doesn't make it necessarily bad. It just makes it different. And if you add that to... You know, federal incentive dollars, there's huge monies, might not be provincial money on the table, but there's absolutely federal money on the table. You and I are federal taxpayers. So anyway, you wonder if there's any further opportunity for a different type of examination. And the government does not need to involve the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. They can simply do it or mimic exactly what goes on at that level and the type of scrutiny afforded to the project or proponents or proposals by the federal body. So anyway, I'm going to talk about it, you know what to do. Happy 10th Innovation Week, led by, of course, TechNL. So maybe we'll make time, maybe we'll get some various companies here, but that sector kind of goes by the wayside as we talk about oil and hydrogen and uh, hydro and forestry and mining, all of which are certainly keenly important, but tech is part of all that. So happy 10th uh, Innovation Week to all involved. A couple of things on the carbon tax. So for home heat oil users in the province, I'm sure people are quite pleased that there's a three-year carve-out for just that home heating fuel. And, of course, very clumsy and unfortunate and unwise comments coming from Minister Hutchings about if you vote liberal in the, tor- in the prairies, then you'll get some of the benefit associated with it. That's kind of how politicians roll, but, you know, we've got a bit of a problem here that's growing every day and sometimes taken advantage of by certain political parties to whatever the wedge is, whatever the division is, which I think is exaggerated, but this doesn't help few confusing things about the carbon tax. So it's probably going away at some point, right? It's been proven to be politically unpalpable for some environmentalists and those who are on side, including all the members of the Liberal government. They're kind of eating their words here a little bit. Some of the issues about the Bank of Canada. Look, monetary policy, <laughs> I'm not pretending I, I got the ins and outs of it, but The thoughts that were going around yesterday, I can't tell you how many emails I've got saying the carbon tax is a 16% contribution to inflation. But that's not what the bank said at all. So there's two different answers to two different questions regarding 0.015% increase in inflation due to the hike in the carbon tax. Of course, when the country, most of the country, ended up on the federal scheme and they moved to 65 bucks a ton, if it was zero, here's the 16%, as explained by the Bank of Canada, not me, their words. If the implication is, we would see a 0.06 percentage point drop from 3.8% of inflation to 3.2 over one year, and after that, they say the deflationary impact would disappear, it's 16% of 3.8, not 16% of inflation, not 16% of 100. So that's the implications of the the carbon tax. So says the Bank of Canada. So that's been certainly bandied about for quite a long time, but there's a lot to it if you want to take it on. We can do it. A couple of quickies before we move off to the break. Amazingly, on this date in 1959, Montreal Canadiens goaltender Jacques Plante became the first NHL netminder to wear a fiberglass protective face mask. Just imagine standing in front of those pucks with no mask. So 59, Plante changed it. In the majors, and of course Texas up 3-1 in the World Series over Arizona, the only pitcher in the majors this year to get uh, 20 wins was uh, Strider. And 20 wins on this date in 1968, Detroit Tigers pitcher Danny McLean, Cy Young winner, he had uh, 31 wins, went 31-6 on the year. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. 
We have indeed talked about the fact that DFO has changed their assessment model regarding the strength of the Northern Cod stock, saying we've probably been in the cautious zone versus the critical zone for a long time. Welcome news in many corners. We're going to start this morning with uh, James Baird. He's the chair of the Newfoundland and Labrador Ground Fish Industry Development Council, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the chair of the Newfoundland and Labrador Ground Fish Industry Development Council. That's James Baird. Good morning, James. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for having me on this morning. Happy to have you on. So, of course, it came out of nowhere a little bit for me that DFO was even trying to assess the or change the assessment model. There's some, of course, technical complexities involved, but for the bare-bone lay listener, what exactly has changed? Well, just let me give you a bit of background. Sure. The, 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 this meeting has been set up now for months. It occurred two weeks ago. It is a pretty substantial process. There was a, a DFO meeting that included DFO and Marine Institute scientists. It included industry science representatives. It included uh, assessment and modeling experts from Norway and Quebec. There were about 45 people in total for a full week. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of information was was implemented, or a lot of information was discussed. And at the end of the day, there was consensus from the 45 people in the room that the, the new, not a, it's not a new model, it's a revision of the old model, uh, and that this revision is probably more appropriate, or is more appropriate than what we've had in the past. Uh, what happened was, the, the key I think, was that the data set used for the old assessments was from 1983 to the present, and DFO pushed that back as far as they could go. And now the model uh, spans from 1954 to the present. So it added 30 years of data to the, to the assessment model. And what that does, that, that in, it allows the historic productivity of the stock to be used in the development of the management procedures and processes for the future. So that's been a positive move, positive step. Well, it certainly seems like it. If we thought that since 1991 the stock had been in the critical zone, now we are understanding based on this new assessment tool that we've likely been in the cautious zone for the last number of years. In addition to historical data being moved from 83 to 1954, were there any other approaches involved, like more more data sets that have been included? You know, whether that be in addition to the sentinel fishery and those type of things and cod tagging studies, anything else changed insofar as inputs? Well, there was the uh, there was a few things like you said. Um, the cod tagging data was was really helpful in getting a handle on what happened in the 1950s. Uh, the Sentinel data is still being used; it's been used for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but what this year, uh, a Capelin index of abundance was also included in the cod model because fish are dying at a higher rate naturally than they are from fishing, so natural mortality is high. And the inclusion of the Capelin in the model helps explain what's going on here. Now, there is an attempt also to include seals in the model, which is a good thing, but there needs to be more information on seal consumption information or seal consumption data before that will work in the model, and DFO are working on that. Overall, uh, this is the most positive news that we've got uh, on Northern Cod since the fishery closed in the early 1990s. There's no question about it. Uh, it could be positive for the industry in next year's, for next year's fishery, uh, the, the, the quota this year, or the maximum allowable harvest, as the EFO calls it, was 13,000 tons. Uh, that could be substantially higher than that next year. The key element will be a full stock assessment that will occur in March of 2024. So we can think about what might, might happen next year. It's potentially going to be good news, but we've got to get that assessment done, which will include 
information from research vessel surveys that are ongoing as we speak. The boats are out there now fishing away on the Grand Banks and off the coast of Labrador, and uh, hopefully the information will be positive, and that will result in, uh, with the new assessment modeling techniques, uh, positive news for the fishery for 2024. Certainly going to see an adjustment, well, very likely see an adjustment upwards in the total allowable catch or the maximum allowable harvest of northern cod. It will give us a more historical, appropriate or accurate limit reference point, the LRP, which is, of course, productivity and performance. But, right. you know, one of the questions that uh, people will always have is, you know, talking about including all, including Capelin uh, and the strength of that stock or the concerns in that stock. But what's DFO saying regarding the need for more more information regarding seals. You don't need to know precisely how much cod a two-year-old seal eat, a two-year-old seal eats, but we have some pretty general knowledge there. In years past, when the TFO went to assess what the seals were eating, the unfortunate reality is the seals would be harvested, but then they'd sit to the point where, by the time we went and examined it, what the contents looked like were sludge, as opposed to actual identifying crabs or capelin or cod or whatever the case may be. So, what is TFO saying is lacking in that understanding? Well, the, the, clearly, they, they do what they call hard, hard parse analysis, right? Like air bones of the cod don't digest. They are, they're called aeolus. They're used for aging cod. Okay. So when you, so they, they would remain in the seal's stomach. So that would give you an idea of what seals are have been, have, that the seal ate, what age the, the cod were, and so on. So you can get that information from those hard part studies. What's difficult to, to include is you've heard about belly feeding. Right, seals who get underneath the wharf and are chewing the belly from the cod, they don't eat the heads. So so you don't get those hard parts that you would think you would need to get the analysis done. Now, DFO are working on a consumption model now. They're looking at uh, the data about what the, the seal, seal's been eating. It's it's not as cut and dry as you might think. Okay. The seals don't spend the whole year in, in Newfoundland waters. They spend half the year up in Greenland, you know. So, like, what they eat in Greenland is not as key to our analysis as you would, uh, uh, you know, like, like, for instance, Cape are in our zone for the most of the year, and you can, that's a pretty important. Uh, but the seals move in and out. So that's, that's, a, that's an element that needs to be included, you know. Uh, where the samples came from, from seals? If they came from inshore or offshore, or did they come from uh, offshore trawlers where the seals caught in the offshore trawlers' nets? That's not the case now, but there's no offshore trawling going on now. But in the, in the past there was. So those are difficulties that DFO is working through. Uh, hopefully, they're going to have this consumption data analysis done fairly soon, and we're going to get a better understanding of, of what's going on. And and the model now is designed to be able to take that information about how much cod that seals are eating and include that in the model as well. So like, DFO is getting ready to do all of that, and, and I think they're making great progress. And actually, hats off to them, because this was a, this was a tremendous amount of work that was completed leading up to this meeting uh, two weeks ago. And uh, so like, most of the industry should congratulate the DFO science crew who put the big effort into uh, getting bringing this to a close, you know. And hopefully the vessels can be out there compiling the science, which has been absent over the last couple of years, all sorts of issues with the age of the fleet and parts that they couldn't get and all those things. So all of this needs to come together at the same time. This past season, possibly a bit of an anomaly with the six-week tie-up and snow crab, but there was some cod left in the water. You know, the processors, of course, of course put the priority on the snow crab and the lucrative product that it is. How did we bring in the processing sector so that if and when there's an increase in the maximum allowable harvest, that the processing sector is actually there to take it on because it's one thing to catch it, quite another to sell it. 
Yeah, you know, absolutely right. Uh, but in the meantime, there was not much cloud left in the water oh, in no. 2023. We, 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 the, the total allowable harvest was 13,000 tonnes. The, the catch was actually 12,985 tonnes. So there was like 15 tonnes left in the water or something. Not very much. Uh, and, and like you're right, the biggest impediment to the start of the fishery this year was that the crab tie-up. Because processes were still cleaning up crab and doing crab, and it's difficult to bring cod and crab into the same plant to get the stuff processed. So there's a transition period from crab into cod, you know. Uh, but if the crab fishery starts on time next year, I and and people have a, a lot of advance notice on what the, the maximum allowable harvest will be, I think there'd be no problem. I've spoken to processors about that uh, over the over the summer and early fall. And if they get early indication of what the card quotas might be, they'll be gearing themselves up to get that stuff processed. Well, like they would. I mean, the multi-species plants, they want to be able to handle as many as much tonnage of everything as humanly possible. It's good for them. It's good for their profits. It's good for their workforce, you know, to keep them engaged, right. keep them in play for the following season. So all of those things can be attended to at once. Uh, James, final thoughts to you. Well, no, Patty, looking forward to the next assessment of the stock. Uh, you're right that uh, there has been trouble with the research vessels in the past. I've spoken to you about that before on, on other calls, uh, but the boats are out there now. They're working away, the science boats, and hopefully we're going to have an assessment, we're going to have a survey, and that's going to provide good news for 2024. Good to have you on the show, James. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Patty. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Yeah. James Baird is the chair of the NL Groundfish Industry Development Council. Yeah, certainly big changes. I mean, there's, you know, when we thought since 1991, the stock has remained in the critical zone. And now with the historical data point being pushed back to 1954 from 1983, maybe a better, well-rounded actual picture of productivity and performance. And yes, that will have an impact on the amount of cut inside the total allowable catch envelope. Let's take a break. When we come back, Daniel's in the queue to talk about uh, comments made by the Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, yesterday. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Daniel, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, sir. Morning to you. I'm calling about uh, what Siobhan Cody had to say about uh, that $500 thing she gave us last year. Sure. Uh, she said it costs over $500 million, right, to implement that uh, $500? Okay. Okay, now, if you uh, if you take 540,000 Newfoundlanders, right, I don't know if everybody got it or not, but take 540,000 Newfoundlanders at $500 each, all you can get is $270 million. Am I right? Yeah, no, not even everybody qualified for it. I mean, I, I think you got the, if I remember correctly, you got the full 500 if you were $100,000 or less, but it had a sliding scale all the way up to people who earned $150,000, I think, got it. Or was it 125 or 150? I think it was 150. You got as much as $250. So I haven't done the full-on math. So just reiterate what you just said. Yeah, so it would be less, to, it would be less than $270 million then. I'm, I'm counting, uh, you know, 540,000 people in Newfoundlanders at $500 each. It works out to $270 million. You said there's a lot of people that didn't, didn't get it. So it'd be a lot less than that. So how did it get over $500 million? I don't know. It's a good question. And the uh, higher, th- the adjusted higher threshold was $125,000, not, uh, not 150. Okay. Right, yeah, okay. But still, it's over $500 million. No, that's double what she said. Again, I'm just going off the top of my head because I was working when she uh, held her press conference, so I just had to read what she said afterwards. Okay, sir, yeah. Yeah. But in the benefit, 
here's the math as I remember it. I think she's conflating a bunch of different pockets of money, to be honest, because the one-time benefit, the cost associated with that was even less than $200 million. I think it was $194 or $195 million. When they added in all the other investments and or pots of money, I think that number came up to $430 million. So I think she's using the $500 check in a bigger picture of an extended pot of money because my math again was 200 million or less for that one time benefit of 500 bucks okay sir thank you very much and uh that's all I have to say about that, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, even the thoughts that, you know, why not this year? Well, there's got to be a time when we talk about borrowing the way it's been extended and, you know, trying to fund a future fund as opposed to simply put all that money on our net debt, which has creeped over $17.1 billion. There's probably sound reason, financially and politically, why those checks aren't going to roll again. As much as I wouldn't mind getting one, I just think that's probably sound to not do it this year. Your thoughts? Oh, well, oh, well. Can't do it. You can't do it. I guess. But I was, I was just wondering where the other uh, two hundred seventy million went. That's all. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll dig into it a little further uh, when I get a moment after the show. But I'm pretty sure she's using a variety of pots of money here, not just that one-time benefit of five hundred bucks up to two hundred fifty bucks for those who earned one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Amazing stuff. Appreciate this, Daniel. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. So, does anyone else have the math in front of them or have a chance to do a quick Google here? My recollection was two hundred million dollars or less. If we're simply talking about the 500 bucks, then there was other short-term, medium-term, long-term investments that were involved in cost of living supports. That's where I think that number grows to, whether it was 420 or 30 million, and she used the number apparently 500 million yesterday. I'm not sure what's exactly incorporated inside all that, but I'll have a look. Uh, let's go to line number three. Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, buddy. Hi, Lindy. How's it going? Best kind. You? Uh, so far, so good, I suppose. Okay. Uh, uh, with the gas tax. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it's going to be uh, cancelled out, whatever. But why did they, why did they put uh, tax on the tax? Well, that's always been the case, right? All the taxes get, the tax gets added, and then the next layer of tax gets added, and of course, it's all based on a percentage. And so consequently, at the end of the day, we have indeed paid tax on tax on gasoline, yeah. Yeah, because I figured it, not only on that, on furnace oil, too. The, the big number is added at the end. You're right. So whether it be the price of the product, the cost of delivery, federal excise tax, provincial tax, carbon tax, HST, all gets added, I think, in that order. So, or no, carbon tax would have been last because, of course, that was a new one, especially when we talk about home heating fuel. So when you say gas tax, are you talking about carbon tax or provincial gas tax? or No, carbon tax. Okay, which is yeah. its own thing, and now it's about 14 cents a liter, which is not insignificant. Uh, the 10 cents federal excise tax has been in, in there and hasn't changed since the day it was implemented, so the change we've seen here is the carbon tax. You're right. The provincial gas tax itself has been halved and continues to be that way, so it's around uh, 8 cents per liter, but the big implication, of course, of the pump is absolutely the carbon tax. Yes, and then, like I said, then they put tax on the tax. Right. There's a way to get a breakdown of what uh, 
falls inside the eventual price you paid. The pump, the PUB, I think you can find it on their website how they break it down. But that's the basics of it. It's the product, it's the delivery, and of course, add into that is that bloody old five cents that goes to Silver Peak for importation and distribution. Must be nice to be able to cover your business costs with a tax from the general public. So that one is really frustrating for many people and frustrates me. But there's the tax implications on the liter of gas. Yep. Okay, that's that one. Okay. Now, uh, uh, Siobhan Cody said there yesterday that this year there's no money uh, coming back to the people like there was last year because the, the money is not there. Right? Right. So uh, I received a, a notice that I could apply for the $500 credit for, for oil uh, this year, and I got a sign in. Well, that's, that's an established pot of money as opposed to what would be another so-called one-time benefit of 500 bucks. So, yeah, there's an incentive for folks who use oil in place again this year, just, just the way it was last year. Okay, so that's still on. That's still on. Okay. Yep. Now, one more thing. Sure. Uh, you burn oil. I do. And did you ever consider uh, changing over to, uh, to uh, electric heat? And I'm telling you, I'll tell you why I'm asking because okay. they never, they never said anything about. Uh, they said they, they, or you said there yesterday that they, they would give you the, the money account, heat exchangers or whatever, uh, for free. Yeah, I don't qualify though. Uh, the household, we make uh, too much money. Uh, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is, they never said anything about old, older homes. Uh, I've been told by contractors, older homes aren't considered to be. Uh, uh, any good or whatever for for uh, heat exchangers or whatever you might call them, uh, and they they advised me that what I actually need is a is an electric furnace. Yeah, that's right. Every home will have a different need based on its age and configuration. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't say anything about electric furnaces. Well, there's a provincial program. So much oil, so much money uh, allocated for for heat exchangers or whatever you might call them. Uh, mini splits or whatever, but nothing about uh, electric, uh, electric furnaces. The provincial program covers electric furnaces. Up to a point. Well, it does. I mean, well, I've, had, I've, had a qu- I've had a quote for electric furnace for uh, $21,000. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, the, the provincial don't cover 21000 bucks. No, it doesn't. But I don't imagine everyone expects that every alternative heating option is going to be free, period. And plus, there's no such thing as free. You're paying for it. I mean, oh, definitely. the government doesn't have their own money. You've got no worries about that. But I, I was just wondering, you know, if they're giving 17, up to 17000 put in these heat exchanges or whatever. Central heat pump. Uh, uh, what, is it, what is it for for electric furnace? There's only the provincial program that covers it, as we just mentioned. And that's it. That's it, as far as I know. Okay, sir. That's it for today. Appreciate the time, Lindy. Yeah, have a good one. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. And, of course, you know, the question will be asked, well, look, I use propane as my primary source, or I burn wood, or you do whatever, stove oil, which is, I think, included in home heating fuels. But... You know, there will be this, and you can bet your bottom dollar, question period today will be once again driven in large part by the so-called division, right? And you know, yes, some of the confusion here is, as far as I understand the process and the program, the ability for someone to get these 
free central heat pumps and all the incentives to move off home heating oil is not just for Atlantic Canada. People keep saying that, but it's simply not the truth. If I live in Edson, Alberta, and my primary source of heat in my home is home heating oil, I get the same benefit. If I'm a low-income earner in Burnaby or in Jasper or in Red Deer or in Winnipeg or in Saskatoon, I get the same offer. A free central heat pump if you qualify as a low-income earner or household. So the division is what it is. And I mean, Minister Hutchings didn't do her government any favor with the comments that she made. But the program extends across the country. We just so happen to be the primary beneficiaries only because of the percentage of people in Atlantic Canada and in this province, which is about 40%, that heat their home with home heating fuel. So it feels like a program for Atlantic Canada, but it's actually a program that everybody in the country from coast to coast to coast can avail of. There will just be fewer numbers outside of Atlantic Canada. And everybody who qualifies with the income threshold can get a central heat pump free, which is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, let's take, but not, look, it's not a good government policy, bad government policy, because it's a splintered policy, which is never great. Let's take a break. When we come back, oh, Dr. Debbie Kelly's in the queue. She's recently been awarded somewhere close to $2 million to do an evaluation of sexual health-related matters in the province. Dr. Debbie Kelly, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the director at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic, the MTS Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. That's Dr. Debbie Kelly. Good morning, Dr. Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind this morning. Thank you. How about you? I'm awesome. Thanks. Okay. So you've received a grant of nearly $2 million to look at improving access to sexual health service in the province. You talk about some of the gaps in the system. What do we mean by that? So can I not go to a regular clinic and or to the hospital and get these types of services? What are the gaps we're identifying and working, working to solve? Yeah, so when we're talking about um, sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections, just to sort of clarify what we're talking about, um, hepatitis C is a big one that we're worried about in this province. So that's less sexually transmitted, more of a bloodborne infection, but it's included in the scope of our work. And we're talking about other sexually transmitted infections like HIV, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea. So you can certainly get um, tested. If you've got a family doctor or a primary care nurse practitioner, that's usually your first place to go. But of course, we know that a lot of people um, don't have access or maybe don't have access in a timely fashion um, to getting quickly for for testing. The other place you can go if you happen to live in sort of the St. John's metro area when we're talking about Newfoundland and Labrador is we've got a great sexual health clinic that's um, located, you know, in Mount Pearl Square, which is, again, phenomenal if you're located in St. John's. But for folks that are outside sort of past the overpass and in other rural and remote areas across the country, a lot of times um, testing and access to prevention services um, are lacking. So, you know, you think you can go into a hospital to get tested, but we know that our emergency rooms are really crowded. It's really not the best place to go, although certainly if you've got symptoms, then then that's where, where you can be captured. What we're really looking at doing is making testing more accessible um, and trying to normalize testing by making it possible for people to access testing in their communities where they're located. So the community pharmacy is kind of a natural hub for that. And as we've been seeing an increase of pharmacist scope of, of practice, it's kind of a natural fit for some pharmacies to offer the service. 
And of course, this is going to be pretty important because the numbers of people with a sexually transmitted infection are pretty significant in this country. The last report that I remember reading, I don't remember the precise numbers, but back in 2019, talking about the increase in the prevalence of whether it be chlamydia, gonorrhea, or infectious syphilis, between 2011 and 2019, the increase, for instance, in gonorrhea was like 190% or something. Chlamydia up like 26%. Uh, increase for syphilis somewhere close to 400%. Do we happen to understand exactly why? So, I mean, it's multifactorial. We're definitely seeing a, a change in, in those numbers. Um, as you point out, Patty, the numbers are either going up for all of these infections or at best they're not going down. Um, certainly during COVID, we saw that um, there was less access to testing and prevention and treatment services. That's not surprising. That was the case across healthcare. But what's of concern is that there was actually um, a reduced demand as well. So what that tells us is that people really were not thinking about their sexual health needs um, in the same way. And again, we were in, you know, a global pandemic at that time. I think we're we're seeing changes in who's becoming in, um, more impacted by a lot of these infections. For example, you know, syphilis, we tended to think about it more commonly happening in men. In, in some cases, we're seeing more infections in women now, so more heterosexual transmission. That can be passed on to babies if it's not treated during pregnancy. Um, you know, when we're looking at hepatitis C, you know, a lot of these infections are a function of syndemics, meaning, you know, when we see mental health issues increasing, when we see addictions and drug use increasing in our community, when we're seeing poverty and, and people being really strapped, strapped for financial resources, oftentimes that also translates into, you know, more risky behaviors happening and an increase in the transmission of infection. So there's a lot of things happening um, that's influencing why we're seeing these numbers. When it comes to access for diagnosis and consequently treatment, what's some of the risks associated with not being diagnosed? Let's just start with syphilis. Okay, so syphilis um, is, you know, is an infection that kind of looks different depending on how long the infection's been present in an individual. So, you know, it could be, all of these things can be asymptomatic. So the, I just want to preface it by saying the only way to know is to actually have a test and, and get that test back and tell you that it's negative. So they can all be asymptomatic or no symptoms. But for syphilis, you know, it could start off as just sort of a primary lesion in the genital areas, but after a month or a couple of months, that can pr produce a rash and that rash could be anywhere on your body maybe the hands of the the hands or the soles of the feet not something you think about as a sexually transmitted infection over time that infection can actually cause more damage though if it's not treated so we can see it causing damage to the brain and the nervous system um, it can infect the eyes so these these infections can get into the bloodstream and cause problems in other areas you know when we think about things like HIV again it could be asymptomatic many many years before you actually see your immune system drop and you start to contract other types of infections or cancers because your immune system's worn down. In the case of hepatitis C, it can be decades before you actually see any sign of liver problems. But by then it can be, you know, the damage is done, it could be too late. You might need a liver transplant. You can develop um, different types of liver cancers and things. So it's really important that um, people are tested on the regular so that they know their status. And importantly, get connected with education and, and prevention to keep yourself safe. When we talk about prevention, is that as simple as behavior and or condoms or what, what else is in that envelope. 
Yeah, so um, definitely uh, condoms are a big part of all of the um, sexually transmitted infections that we're talking about. Um, in some cases, we actually have medication that can be used to prevent. So, for example, HIV, we have something called PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a medication that someone can take before they're exposed. So you take it before sexual activity. And, of course, we're not advocating that everyone should take um, HIV PrEP, but there are certain things that, you know, you can talk to with your health, talk about with your healthcare provider, and we can give you advice on whether you might be a good candidate for PrEP or not. So certain types of risk behaviors or engaging in certain types of, of sexual activity may make you a good candidate for receiving PrEP. But that's a program, and this is one of the things that we're looking at um, putting in through pharmacies as well. My, one of my colleagues in the co-lead on this project, Dr. Kyle Wilby at Dalhousie, just completed a really great pharmacist prescribing for HIV PrEP study, um, where pharmacists were actually able to provide this medication to people um, in Nova Scotia. It was associated with high satisfaction, prevention of infections, but importantly, through the follow-up and monitoring that's done. So you get blood work done every three months. We were able to identify other sexually transmitted infections and get people connected with treatment that perhaps may have otherwise been missed. In the world of treatment, like for instance, HIV, we know there's no cure, but the introduction of some antiretroviral drugs has made it more manageable. I think what it does is keeps it from replicating in your body. But when it comes to hepatitis C, syphilis, is it simply a matter of when diagnosed to manage symptoms or are there such things as cures? I honestly don't know. Yeah, we can cure them. Absolutely. I mean, hepatitis C, the treatment has really revolutionized um, over the last 10 years. So if you take medication for hepatitis C for as little as eight weeks, we can cure that infection. So obviously that has you know, obvious health benefits to the individual, but it also has benefits to the community because there's a decreased risk of transmission onward. Same thing with syphilis. Simple antibiotics, in fact, the, the drug of choice for syphilis is penicillin. Now, it's a certain type of injectable penicillin okay. that we use. But again, it can be cured with a few doses of penicillin. So the key is getting tested, finding out your status, and then getting um, rapid access to, to treatment. A while back, uh, there was reports about the increase in the, the numbers of people that have a sexually transmitted infection. But let's talk about demographics. There was a surge in senior drug demographic there a number of years ago. And you talk about who is being infected and then access to diagnosis and access to treatment, and hopefully that will end up at your local pharmacy. But do we know, based on a demographic or age demographic breakdown, who's getting these infections? Yeah, so it, you know that does vary depending on the infection that we're talking about. For chlamydia and gonorrhea, those infections. So first thing I'll say is they all can affect anyone. Okay, who's having um, sex? And when we're talking about hepatitis C, the main risks of hepatitis C transmission are you know through blood to blood transmission, so through in you know injection use equipment or, or contact with a infected blood in other ways. But the demographics are different depending on the infection. So chlamydia, gonorrhea tend to affect more often younger adults or younger people. So sort of that, you know, 18 to 25, 29 demographic. Syphilis kind of overlaps with that and spans into um, older adults um, again. We tend to see, um, you know, lots of heterosexual transmission for chlamydia, gonorrhea, um, men who have sex with men. We can see that tends to be um, a group that we, we find a lot of syphilis cases in. But again, as I mentioned earlier, earlier on, we're seeing the demographics change, and certainly heterosexual transmission is happening too, affecting both men and women, um, 
which is true for all of these infections. When we think about um, HIV and syphilis, um, I think you're referring to older adults. Definitely. Um, I think sometimes we have a, an age bias and we think that, you know, when you turn 50, you stop having sex, which is actually not the case in, in many circumstances. And a lot of times folks that are repartnering. So maybe they've been in a long-term relationship, you know, for a decade or decades, and they haven't really been thinking about sexually transmitted infections and their risk there. And it's sort of multiplied when you add menopause or, or decreased chance of, of, of pregnancy, people oftentimes use condoms for that purpose. Um, so they're not being as mindful and not using condoms when they're, you know, I'll say re-entering the dating game. And when we look at the use of, you know, dating apps and hookup sites and things like that, where anonymous sex is happening more often and, and it certainly enables accessing multiple partners more readily, it just really... Um, brings forward, I guess, the need for more regular testing um, to raise, you know, to raise your own education um, and make sure that you're you're staying safe. With hepatitis C, all of these sort of apply, but as I mentioned, um, you know, some of the, the different demographics there, but I also want to mention that the baby boomer group, so adults 50 and older, um, actually should have a hepatitis C test done at least once in your lifetime because of that age demographic Earlier in life, you may have been exposed through just um, some procedures at hospital um, where we didn't use the same sort of cleaning procedures that we use now. There was a risk of transmission of hepatitis C. And as I mentioned, it can lay dormant for decades. So if you're in that baby boomer population, you really should have a hepatitis C test done at least once just to rule that out. Really good to have you on the show, Dr. Kelly. Anything else you'd like to say before I get off to the news break? Um, I will just mention that um, the pharmacy-based testing project, our approach study um, that launched last December, is still ongoing. So if anyone is interested in coming out to be tested for um, HIV, hepatitis C, or syphilis, it is available at participating pharmacies throughout uh, Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, and Alberta. And they can just check out our website at uh, www.approachstudy.com. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Doc. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Debbie Kelly, Director of Medication Therapy Services Clinic at the School of Pharmacy at Memorial University. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Dave's in the queue to talk about the city water tax. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Dave. You're on the air. Hi, uh, I'm a first-time caller. I'm a little nervous. You take your time. Go right ahead. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to call in today in relation to a uh, notification I received uh, on around October, late October. And it was relation to uh, what was been permitted for as long as I can remember, because I've been signing the forms for at least uh, 13, maybe even 15 years. And that's what they call a water tax exemption uh, for apartments if the apartment is not in use. Mm-hmm. My apartment has not been in use for 15 plus years. Uh, but now I'm receiving notification that I have to apply for an inspection for a change of occupancy. I have to remove the range cable uh, in the additional unit, and I have to ensure the two units are interconnected by an adjoining door. Uh, so now I find myself having to modify my home uh, to meet these requirements. 
I, I find it peculiar in recognition I was just listening to the news podcast as I was waiting for this to come on and the government is saying and sort of the province and municipalities are all saying we're in a housing crisis uh, by taking this action I'm reducing any opportunity of this unit ever being bought back to the market uh, right now I'm doing okay my family's okay and we don't need to rent that unit uh, one, what brought it to an end uh, was I had significant damage done by a tenant at one time and decided I would never do it again. Uh, but I certainly didn't intend to ever pull uh, the unit off the market, you know, pull, pull this damaged unit in a fashion which means it could never be rented into the future. I would assume I would have to go through all kinds of uh, permit requirements uh, to bring it all back up to snuff if, uh, you know, things change. Uh, I just find it extremely upsetting. I have been talking to my counselor. Uh, he initially told me uh, it, the, the vote on this matter to end uh, the uh, exemption uh, was voted on unanimously. Uh, I told, I, when talking to him, he said he'd received calls from at least 30 seniors like myself uh, saying that this was, was causing us financial jeopardy uh, in one of two ways. We either have to pay to get a permit, an electrician in, and a carpenter to do these changes. And number two, if I do the changes, my home is no longer going to be recognized as a two-unit home. It's going to be a single-family home. Uh, I'm of the age where we're looking at downsizing. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we certainly don't want to make that decision promptly based on this kind of uh, situation. But this tax is now becoming due uh, January 24, uh, 2024. Uh, there's only my wife and I living in our home. It's a, it's a big home. We, we live in Cowan Heights. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was the right size for us at the time when we got married and moved up here. Uh, we had a child. We, had, we used the apartment with him the latter few years. Uh, he lived down there, uh, you know, to have some freedoms. And now we find ourselves uh, having to do, you know, make notification of a change of occupancy, uh, get a permit, uh, get an electrician, and incur all these costs. And, and I just see it's, it's, it's extremely upsetting. Absolutely. There's hundreds, maybe five or six or more uh, hundred residents that have received this exact same notice that I've heard about. So when they say they voted through unanimously, what was the rationale for having people go down this road? Uh, they suggested at the time, which I find, again, a little peculiar, the decision was based on increased eligibility complex complexity and a verification issue. I told uh, Councillor Karab, who's Councillor for my area, that he could come up and visit my home at any time. And I even jokingly said to him, I'd give him a key. Uh, so he could come in or a, you know, a member of, uh, of his staff could come in and see their unit is not occupied. It's truly, you know, I use it for storage right now. Uh, but, he, you know, but when I spoke to uh, uh, Councillor Crabb yesterday when he phoned me, he told me that he had bought a motion uh, to rescind uh, this uh, uh, cancellation of the exemption, uh, he said that it was a situation where, oh, no, it couldn't be done now uh, because it was reducing taxes, which is against the Municipalities Act. Uh, you know, the story seems to change because initially I was told it was due to abuse, uh, that people were signing the waiver and then renting their units. You know, people have to advertise a unit for, for vacancy, availability for someone to rent, uh, so, you know, if there, someone's abusing it, deal with those who abuse it, not with the innocent party. Uh, you know, I've been signing a declaration, as I said, for years, 
Uh, and it clearly states on the exemption, uh, I, or we agree, and acknowledge that should uh, I submit a false application or affidavit or fail to notify the city of any changes in the use of the, or the activity of a subsidiary apartment at the, at the subject property, all previous exempt water taxes on the subject property will become due and payable. So if I lied, which I did not, but if I had lied at any point in time and was renting my unit and the city became aware of it, I had to pay all the taxes for all the years that I that the waiver had been approved. But now that you know they're saying, oh no, no waiver, uh, you have to now not only you can't have a waiver, you have to either adjust the, the makeup of your home and disconnect the electrical wiring, which obviously has to be done by an electrician, qualified electrician, and incur these costs. I'm not renting my unit. I'm quite willing to have it looked at. And if I do make these alterations, I'm going to devalue my home. Absolutely. You're, the resale value will be compromised if it goes from a two-unit to a single-family dwelling. So if you don't do the work, then you're going to have a separate uh, water tax, so another 670 bucks. That's correct. I, right now, me and my wife are living in the house. We pay $670 in water taxes. Now we'll have to pay two lots of water taxes for two people living in a house. Patently unfair. So when you said range cable, was that the electrical for the stove? Is that what that meant? Correct. Okay. I have that disconnected at the main. Any idea what the renovations, even though it does come with a financial implication on the other side when you go to downsize and sell your home, any idea what it would take for the carpenter and electrician to make these alterations to avoid the $670 additional water tax? I'm not sure specifically. I mean, I I, I was too upset to talk back to city council again. Uh, They say it's just disconnect the cable, but when you read their letter, it says remove the cable. So I don't know if i got to tear up the apartment and pull the full wiring from the, the outlet where the, the uh, oven plugs in uh, to the uh, fuse panel, or if they just can disconnect from the fuse panel, maybe cut some wires uh, so it can't be reconnected, I assume, because obviously they don't trust uh, a homeowner to, to look after that. Strange set of circumstances because you're right. When there are people abusing different regulations and different rules, and then consequently everybody in the same envelope gets painted with the same broad strokes, it's just unfair. If the city has a problem, the city should be able to deal with it. If you had to sign for, for what I guess can be considered an affidavit, acknowledging that if you uh, submit false documentation, then you're going to have to pay retro uh, taxes on it, fair ball. But if you're not that person, and if you're not one of those people who are abusing it, you you shouldn't be taken to task the way that this is happening. So we'll get the councillor on. Uh, we've got a lot of things we need to discuss with the city of St. John's. Maybe we'll start with the mayor. But Councillor Korab generally listens to this program. If he's listening right now, it'd be great to get an update because not all 700 are abusing it, obviously. Yep. And so all 700 shouldn't be made to either compromise the resale value of their home, entertain the cost associated with a double water tax, entertain the cost associated with a, a carpenter, electrician, whatever else might be required. Because... For number one, you might not even be able to get one before uh, January to do both of those sets of jobs. And number two, it's an unfair additional cost that you don't deserve. So we'll follow up on your behalf. Thank you so much. And, you know, I would like to clarify that Jamie Crabb has been very uh, attentive to my call. Uh, He has also, you know, notified me that he tried to vote that back. 
he did tell me he voted unanimously on it, but he was unaware of what the effects would be. And it was only when uh, myself and others brought it to his attention that he realized how detrimental, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Crabb is also a real estate agent. Uh, he should perfectly well know what the de- detrimental effect this will be on someone like myself as a senior who will try to sell the home in the not f- too distant future. Uh, you know, everyone's doing the best they can, but as I said, uh, I jokingly said St. John's being a Scrooge. And truly, you know, we're upon the Christmas season, and this is not the time to receive this kind of notification. And it was only yesterday uh, Councillor Crabb called me and told me that I had to do, if I didn't want to pay $670 a year, I had to follow the, the regulations as they set down in their letter. And I just find it extremely upsetting. And thank you, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Daly, for giving me the opportunity to speak on this matter. Happy to do it. I appreciate the time, Dave. We will follow up. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, when there's abuse, let's punish those who are abusing, not folks who are sitting by doing exactly what's been asked of them, filing the documentation for said exemption. If the unit's not being rented, then why would anyone have to pay a tax? I mean, it could be fundamental enough for a city inspector or a councillor or whoever to simply take up Mr. Pike and his uh, suggestion that come up and have a look. It's a storage space, not a rental. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. Uh, I had to call in. I, I was reading an article that you had posted yesterday about the hub, and I had to say, <laughs> it left me shaking my head in frustration. Um, I met with Tom Badcock uh, in the first part of... Um, October. Uh, he brought the proposal to me and said, that's not a bad idea. It's a way uh, of addressing in a small way uh, uh, through a not-for-profit organization. Um, I wrote the minister on the 11th of October and copied Tom on it and basically asked for a meeting between the minister and the uh, and Tom. I figured, you know, there's at least to sit down and flesh this out. Now I'm looking at, I guess, I, I was speaking to Tom earlier, the frustration that he's uh, felt with this. Um, and, and, and now I'm seeing the minister uh, that he's going, he's open to a meeting with the hub. And yet it seems in all of this, I, what I thought was a proactive, pretty proactive uh, approach uh, to, uh, to dealing with it, we're getting more reaction. Uh, like, anyway, I... I, I, I I, I like the idea, and I, I figured this is something I could uh, that the, uh, that this is something that the minister that the government could have a win-win-win because it's about affordable housing. It's about uh, assisting a not-for-profit, and it's about also housing for the disability community. It would have been, I think, all around a good winner. And 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 in light of the fact that Patty, yesterday, we lost four four. Uh, affordable housing units to a fire or there and 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 a personal residence i think you know every little bit at this stage of course and you know this story begins with the fact that he can't even get an answer i mean it's extraordinary how loudly do people have to beat the drum here's a potential solution let's out to the uh, let's add to the housing market here's what we might be able to do at the hub or wherever else to not get an answer is just galling it 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 for a government that claims, and the premier claimed that they are fully seized with this housing issue, and that they want outside the box thinking, 
Now, you've heard me say about where I stand on bed sitting rooms and, and, and in the in the private market, but I will tell you that I knowing I know the hub. I know what Tom is trying to respond to because you've got people sleeping under the uh, in some case under the uh, the walkways over there. But here's an attempt, I guess, if nothing else, to address this issue. And you can't get an answer. Or as uh, as uh, Mr. Badcock pointed out to me, he was directed to uh, federal uh, funding sites, which uh, the portals are closed. So I. To, I would be extremely frustrated uh, by this, uh, and I, I'm more frustrated because you've heard me speak to these housing issues, not the first time I, I've spoken to this, but here's an opportunity to address it. At least sit down. I think early on the, the meeting should have been between Mr. Badcock and the minister, and let's talk about how we move this forward. And, uh, and, and I, I think it's a good idea. More not-for-profits involved with this, I think overall it's going to be beneficial to the, to the housing, uh, affordable housing for sure. In the world of housing, like there's no stone we can't uh, overturn to see what might be under it and ideas that people have. But with the fall fiscal update yesterday, and we know that we were told by the mortgage corp that we're going to have to build 60,000 units in six years, uh, housing starts forecast for 2023, 899, 34.8% reduction from 13.79 last year. If we talk about five-point plan and housing accelerator funds and timelines associated with, we are behind the proverbial eight ball and probably have been for quite a long time time as this problem has grown. That number jumped off the, the page to me, much more than the borrowing costs, much more than unemployment, much more than future fund stuff, because if housing, if we can't get that right, all those other numbers are going to grow and jump exponentially. So that really was a staggering number for me. But not only that, it's interesting because with housing, and like to, I guess I'm looking at housing and homelessness. Uh, if we think that the current situation is cost neutral, it is not. Uh, and I said that yesterday when I was interviewed. We're living in a fool's paradise. And I'll give you one example of this. If you look at the, at the uh, story of St. Thomas in, uh, in Ontario, just uh, south of, I think, of London, there, Indwell moved in with its supportive housing. But what they noticed is that the, uh, they actually rediverted the, a lot of the, uh, the policing enforcement resources because they noticed crime rate drop. I, and I and I would assume that Lond that we're, we're going we're spending probably because of this we're probably spending more money in enforcement because uh, you know and you look at crime uh, desperate uh, people who are just desperate to make ends meet um, uh, health care costs and it's like we're going there there's an uh, we're adding those costs we're talking about the you're talking about housing but let's talk about the other related costs that come with it and that needs to be addressed but uh, I mean uh, uh, to me when I hear the minute one minister talk about how the tents city is getting smaller as a result of uh, being offered affordable housing. I would uh, have to dispute that. I think they've moved down to the other tent uh, encampment and uh, or they're gone elsewhere. Um, when I'm hearing another minister talk about saying how we should try our shelters and yet that's tone deaf to the very thing that people have said this is the very reason why they, they, if they go there will undermine their own sobriety, their own recovery and their own, their own path away from uh, incarceration. I had one gentleman yesterday called in. He basically violated the terms of his condition so he could end up back in jail. He's refused bail because, as he said, at least now I've got a place to stay, I've got meals, I've got a bed. To me, that's a sad comment, but that, that's the expense, Patty. I, I, I think in many ways when ideas like, like the hubs come forward, I think 
they sound, I've seen the plans, the, uh, the, uh, they're, they're reasonable. Why not they take a look at that? Because the long term, I think, there's going to be savings and there's going to be opportunity. But to your point, the number of houses we've got to build uh, is staggering, and we've got to look at that investment because I think the cost, the cost of not doing so are going to be greater. When people bring up the annual conversation about the fact that some people will purposefully commit a crime, not just for the reap the rewards of the crime, but to find a place to stay during the cold winter months is remarkable. Well, that's, uh, that's two. That's the second person. The gentleman over, uh, uh, a former student of mine over at the 10th City said he, he made it to Jim. He said, the path, he said, I know the path back to jail. It's an easy path. It, it, you know what I need to do, and I know, I know the system. What he said to me, he said, what I want is a place that I can stay, that I can cling on to, that I, would be, that I don't want to lose, that would give me a path forward. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's talk, but when we got a, a person who called us and said he's back in jail because, really, the, the housing options and the lack of support for him out in the uh, are just on a, weren't just there, um, he's familiar with this, uh, this uh, the, the system he's in now. To me, that is sad. Uh, you know, if we're talking about recovery and rehabilitation and people moving on with their lives, um, that's one thing. But there's also the fact that he's uh, that a person is back in the system, uh, and and we're and let's let's call a spade a spade. We're still staying. We're we're probably paying more money for that. No question. I appreciate the time this morning, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye bye. And, you know, when there was a question earlier, I believe the gentleman's name was Daniel, about Minister Cody using $500 million as a number for cost of living supports. And as we discussed during that phone call, that $500 one-time benefit is not $500 million. The government, actually, the Department of Finance has sent along some of the different uh, issues that were part of that $500 million. We can get to that after the break, but we were right. The $500 check, the one-time benefit that people got last year, earning up to $125,000, get maybe 250 bucks. that was less than $200 million. So there's a bunch of different uh, issues that the government has sent along as what adds up to that $500 million. Uh, let's go to line number one. Alan, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Benny? Okay, man, how you doing? Oh, not bad. Just calling in about the water texting. You know, a simple solution for that is water meters on the houses. Pay for what you use. Fair enough. I mean, I could have a 1,200-square-foot bungalow with me and the wife and nobody else living in it, a very similar-sized house down the street with eight people living in it. We use different amounts of water. Exactly. 100%. Now, there are water meters in the city, for instance, but they're only on bigger units or places that have, you know, the exemptions are if it's three dwelling units or more, you need a water meter. If you have a home office, there's a consideration there, but like on regular homes for regular single-family dwellings, no water meter. But that's a fair idea. Why not pay for what you actually use? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, like saying down the street, I got two. I got a apartment that's rented. That's fair enough. I pay two water tax. But people down the street, they got on rent on rented apartment. They pay one water tax. There's like eight or nine people living in the entire house. It's foolishness. I mean, the city's bad enough it is, but they don't seem to want to help themselves out very much, do they? Probably not. <laughs> and there's just another example of the abuse, right? I mean, so this past caller who had an issue with he's losing his exemption because of his apartment that's still there but not being rented. So there's a lot of different issues as to why we can have it more fair across the board. I don't like the thought of uh, having your property tax based on your income, but I don't want to pay more for water if I'm not, not using what constitutes $675 worth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's I get it. crazy. Mm. 
and like, they want to conserve water. Great way to conserve water too, if you're paying for what you use. Right? And like that, smarten people up a little bit, there, right? Absolutely. I mean, we take it for for granted, don't we? You know, water use here, it's one of the most precious commodities on the face of the earth, and yet we're really not that great with it here. But, of course, we're not talking about the ability at this moment in time, anyway, to export water to places that actually need fresh drinking uh, potable water. But, you know, running the tap and putting on the dishwasher with six or seven pieces of, uh, of uh, glassware in is, you know, we're just a little bit... We're not very fru- uh, we're not very frivolous. Pardon me, we're very frivolous with our water usage around here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like you said, the great to talk about concern or conserving water. I mean, this would be the proper way to take care of it. Right? Fair enough. I appreciate the thought and the time. Okay, thanks, Patty. We'll be having. Have a good one. You too, Alan. Bye bye. Well, I mean, he's he's 100% right. You know, you can have very similarly sized and configured homes where someone might live alone. And paying $675 for water directly across the street in a house that is very similar to that person. They maybe have six or seven people in there and the water is going full bore. Pay for what you use. Not a terrible idea. Uh, Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to uh, oil and gas consultant. That's our friend Rob Strong. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? Excellent, sir. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm not bad. Just back from Guyana, so I'm just trying to adjust to the cold weather. <laughs> the, the, salary, the, salary, the, the temperature range last week was between 29 and 31. It was zero degrees when I got in the rig this morning. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, is the as we say in Newfoundland, is the arse ever out of her down there? They're uh, got two production, two two rigs producing four hundred thousand barrels a day. Another one about to be hooked up, and four more ordered. So by twenty twenty seven, they'll have seven FPSOs producing a million and a half barrels. So there you go. It can be done, and there is still a market. Which brings me to my topic today, and I'm. Uh, I'm probably getting buried in so many interesting issues that you're talking about. But at 12 noon today, there's a uh, it's the closing time for a bunch of land offerings offshore. There's some some 47 parcels of acreage up for bid offshore Newfoundland, and that is by far the largest by far the largest offering I've ever seen in my 40 years. There are some 28 packages in the, in what we call the Jean d'Arc Basin or the Eastern Newfoundland area, uh, which includes, of course, Hibernia, Hibernia, Hebron, Terranova, White Rose, and a lot of other areas. And there's another 19 parcels closing in what the, what the, the CNLOPB calls the Southern Eastern Newfoundland region. So at 12 noon today, uh, a whole whack of offers, I hope, although it would not surprise me if there are very little, uh, go into this into the board, and we should know tomorrow what uh, what interest there is, is, if indeed there is any, in any of these blocks of acreage. Yeah, and well, I guess it remains to be seen, but those 47 parcels also cover some 12 million hectares of land. Yeah, and I... I, I <laughs> When you talk about hectares, I did some calculations this morning because I'm like, like many people, don't know what a hectare is. So I calculated to acres. And some of the blocks of acreage, some of the individual blocks themselves are 600,000 acres themselves. So 
that's that's the largest block, and some of them are are much smaller, and therefore about uh, about 120,000 acres of land. So fairly large blocks of acreage in the in the in the eastern region, the north of the Jean d'Arc basin. Of course, there's been a significant amount of seismic activity and some drilling. So. The geology, the the resource, the resource rock, the, you know, it, there is some knowledge of it. But in the southern southern parcels, there's only been one exploration license ever issued. So, I don't know, Patty. In the in the context of you know, we've got probably 30, 40 years of fossil fuel uh, consumption, uh, and some will argue a lot less. Uh, are we going to see oil companies interested in drilling? And you have to bear in mind one of the one of the constraints, of course, is the long lead time. From, you know, you drill your first well, you find some oil, you then you have to go back and study that for a year or two, and then you have to delineate it another three or four years. Then you decide to produce it, so you have to start to study it. Then you have to prepare a development plan. All the you know you're in the five six years already. Then you got to get the development plan approved. Then you got to get into the contracting, got to award some bids. You got to build it. So you're probably 10 years from discovery to first oil. Now there's been a concentrated effort in the industry globally, not only not just offshore Newfoundland, to speed up that process. But certainly it doesn't happen overnight. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. I got my fingers crossed, but uh, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a limited amount of acreage. I think you'll, I think you'll see some of the existing operators pick up some surrounding acreage. Which which might mean that they could you know tie it back to an existing platform, but uh, as to new entrants, I'm I'm doubtful, unfortunately. After after 40 long years or 40 great years in this business, I think it's uh, I think the sun is finally setting. Although I'll be dead and buried by the time the sun goes down, but I think uh, I think when uh, in the context of you know if you look at where I've just come from, Guyana. Where you know oil was discovered 2015, they were producing 2020, and by 2027 they'll be producing a million and a half barrels. So we have to compete against that jurisdiction. Uh, it's tough, believe me, it's tough. Some of the lag time, of course, is regulatory, but some of it is just due diligence on the business side, you know, and the engineering side and the scientific side. So I, I totally get it. Yeah, insofar as the size of a hectare, there's about 2.4-ish uh, acres in a hectare. So we're talking about huge swaths of land. I don't know what the future holds in these particular bids and on these parcels, but... You know, we've seen, even when we talk about the fall fiscal update yesterday, there was over $200 million in forfeitures from oil companies that already had vested interest and had looked at parcels of land out there. So that might be some of the crystal ball stuff. We've seen some oil companies hell-bent for leather, still going at it full bore, probably seeing what you're seeing, that the sun is setting. So maximizing profits now before the demand does indeed, you know, is reduced. I don't know when peak is. I don't know if we've hit it. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when there's going to be a far less reliance on oil, but today still is. Robust market. Just look at what ExxonMobil did. A $60 billion play in the United States on a shale play. And a big shale company. I can't remember what they were called. Progress or something? Pioneer. Yeah, there you go. And then in the oil sands, even in this country, reinvestment is happening. The mergers and billions of dollars worth of value being uh, established every day inside the business models themselves. The profitability in the oil sands last year was 30 Eight billion dollars. Yes, so there's still money. Still money, and, and and another one was Chevron. Chevron just bought a company down in Guyana, or a company called Hess, uh, for sixty billion dollars. So there is still a you know so the, 
I, I guess the, the number of the number of oil companies are shrinking. The bigger you are, they, the more capital you have, and therefore you can swallow up the small guys. But as you say, there is still an appetite for it, and will be for some time. No doubt about it. When we talk about the Jean d'Arc Basin, not to say that it's fully understood, but there's a pretty clear understanding that that could be a very rich and profitable, loaded down with barrels of oil potential. Do you see that being the one parcel or the area that would get more attention than possibly the others? Yes, I do. And I think the potential there is for what we call subsea tieback. The uh, Hibernia Southern Extension is a classic example of that. Some 10 kilometers away, there was a separate reservoir which contained about 200 million barrels. 200 million barrels doesn't justify a, a standalone development because of the high capital cost. But if you can tie it back to an existing structure, an existing production platform, then it makes a lot of sense. And I understand from 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 different sources, there are other there are other potential subsea tiebacks. I know when the Hebron project was approved, there were, they also talked about the development of two potential subsea tiebacks. So, you you know you don't have to have a massive big platform anymore. You can t- you can you can tie it back with with pipelines. You can drill it and then tie it back. So, you're entirely correct. There is there is lots of oil left in the Jean d'Arc Basin, and of course with the with the with the move afoot to to look at sort of putting wind farms in the you know look at Norway they got a, a cluster of a cluster of offshore developments they're now being powered by electricity by floating wind farms so that's also a potential being looked at for the Jean d'Arc Basin so you know if we can we can cut down the CO2s and 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 yet increase production then it can go on for years and years and years yeah and I, and as we all know the province has just dangled out some six million dollars to examine carbon capture and storage utilization that might indeed be for you know close proximity to our own offshore as opposed to importing carbon from wherever i don't know if it's going to work but we've talked about it many times in this program the technology itself the appetite for said storage whether it be in a saline aquifer or a depleted oil reserve or a depleted oil well pardon me so that's going to be part of it as well the province has been talking about electrification of the offshore for years oh they have but Patty, I'm also convinced when you talk about CCU or carbon capture, you know when you the, the province has also committed five or six million dollars to to do an assessment of the gas on, in the Jean d'Arc Basin. Uh, there's very little what we call standalone gas. There are no gas with, but the, all the offshore platforms, or most of them, have associated gas. So the oil comes up from the ground to the production platform. The production platform separates the oil from the gas, reinjects the gas down in the reservoir to maintain reservoir pressure. Mm-hmm. So they store the gas. So there's lots of gas being stored. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the in the potential, and, and maybe I'm a dreamer, but. Uh, you got to have dreamers in the world, too. Uh, maybe we should be looking at bringing the gas ashore and liquefying it and sending it to the market and then pumping out carbon to fill up the void created by the removal of the gas, sort of a twin pipeline. It, it makes sense to me. I mean, the government of Canada is very serious about... The, about getting 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 a handle on on carbon storage, and so the Jean d'Arc the Jean d'Arc uh, reservoirs, which are now devoid of of oil, uh, are, are, are an excellent place to place the carbon. And what are you going to do with the gas? Well, well let's let's bring it ashore and monetize it. So. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that there's a future for carbon capture 
both in the well in the Jean d'Arc basin, and I'm a firm believer that we should be looking very seriously about monetizing the the associated gas that's that's in the reservoirs. Well, the issue regarding carbon capture, the oil industry itself desperately needs it to work because it is one of those mitigating factors that they're leaning on quite heavily because they know the concern with the emissions where they are, and then of course downstream is very very real and is under more scrutiny than ever before. So they desperately need carbon capture to work. Whether or not it will, I guess we'll find out how this research goes, being led by Dr. Leslie James at Memorial University. When we talk about monetizing natural gas, of course, and you don't have to pipeline it to shorter liquefied, you, there's liquefaction uh, platforms that are already in use in this world. I don't know if we've got the amount of gas to justify that approach necessarily. But what do you in the industry know about business model associated with gas like where is the profitability at what price per mmbtu because today it's around probably 350 per mmbtu so where does that number need to be is it five bucks six bucks what do you, what do we know well I, I should tell you though patty that that's 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 uh, that's the price in canada and that may be the price in western europe but the price in 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 asia i mean if you look at the lng pro, pro, lng projects going on in in bc they're looking at 12 14 dollars per thousand so there's a there's a wide range of pricing for for LNG or for gas period. So uh, I don't know if anybody's actually quantified the the cap the capex the capital cost. Right. I mean, of, of producing gas, but as I say, there's a wide variety. When you do talk about, you know, three bucks, three bucks a thousand Henry Hub prices, that's fine. But that's uh, that that varies from wherever the market is. And 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 when if you look at the problems or the, the problems associated with Russia and Ukraine, uh, Europe in generally is is starving for gas. Not only starving for gas, they're starving for hydrogen. They're starving for alternate sources of energy. So. Uh, uh, you can't, you know, to, to, to select a, a number of three, three bucks a thousand is 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 not the way to go. No, and that's of course just a daily trade average. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And again, that's a North American grid or North American Henry Hub price. So, uh, but I'm I'm hoping I, I'm part of a, a group that's looking at it just in a. In a at a fifty thousand foot level, and that's one of the issues we're trying to get a handle on. But the the advantage of of, of what we call fling floating LNG facilities, uh, you know, why not put a fling out in the middle of Jean d'Arc Basin? Take the gas, take re- retrieve the gas right there and then, and then, and then bring an LNG carrier alongside and take it to Europe. Saves the cost of a pipeline. I suppose if the oil companies currently operating offshore could make money at it, they'd be doing it, I guess. I think that's what they're... <laughs> whether they like it or not, that's the, that's the business they're in, in, in the making money. So, But right now, of course, oil has been the cash cow, and they, didn't, they haven't looked at gas. But as slowly as the, re, as the reserves get depleted... I mean, we've taken a million... We, we as an industry, or we as a province, we've taken 1.4 billion barrels of oil out of Hibernia alone. Yeah. So there's obviously... It's, a, it's not an infinite... A reservoir. I mean, you're not going to go out forever and ever. Now, depending on who you believe, the CNLOPB is, I think, carrying about 1.8 billion barrels. I don't know what the oil companies are carrying because they have various ways of estimating. But still, there's you know probably five or six hundred million barrels left in Hibernia. But after after the oil is all gone, there's a whack of gas there. So why not then then look at the gas? 
My point being is that maybe we should be looking at it now to get ready for the point when when the gas when the oil is all gone and yet there's a gas. And in particular, Patty, in the White Rose field, which is very gas prone, they've had to drill a well just for gas injection. So uh, it's out there for sure. But uh, trying to convince someone to uh, to look at producing it's another you know well beyond my capability yeah mine too I mean even off just off the coast of Labrador there's trillions of cubic feet of gas trillions 4.2 TCF there you go you had the number I we, we, we discovered in the early 80s and and of course, the problem up there is it's so costly because of Iceberg Alley. And then sure. what, do you, what do you do with it? You bring it ashore, but you're bringing, there's no industrial base there. But, but you're right. There's lots of gas out there. we just got to find a, a most economical way to produce it. Hibernia, one of the most productive offshore oil fields. And then you talk Bader Norton. I can't believe Equinor hasn't pulled the trigger on that yet. There's potential for that to be... Three billion, four billion barrels. So, and their break-even number at thirty-five bucks. I really think we're going to hear something on that in the short term. I got my fingers and my legs crossed on that. I, I do too. I think they had to go back and re- reevaluate the original production scenario. I think the whole design that came forward wasn't acceptable to the, some of the Hyundai's, Daewoo's, and Samsung's, the guys that build these hulls. So they had to go back and look at it. And the subsea, the, the because of the, the, I mean, the Beta Nord field really is six separate fields and stretches from one 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 end of the, one end to the other about 67 kilometers. So it's a very expensive subsea development probably going to be close to a billion dollars so I think they've got to go back and look at what new technology can we apply can we tie this one together with that one or can we eliminate this one or can mm-hmm. we do horizontal drilling And so I think they were very legitimate in saying they want to go back and have a look at it and hopefully because as you know they're coming back next year to drill drill a well in the, in the field so if they weren't interested I don't think they'd be back drilling next year. Yeah so we'll keep an eye on the CNLOPB tomorrow or I guess this afternoon. Exxon's out they're exploring this go around we know that the last bit of exploration prior to that was CNOC the Chinese company they came up dry they went away so we'll keep an eye on it I appreciate the time as usual Rob always a pleasure Patty take care you too bye bye all right there you go and of course the other perspective is also welcome on that particular concern uh, David see if we get Frank back he wants to talk about rebates but let's go ahead and take a break and when we come back hopefully Frank's in the queue to talk about rebates which one not sure uh, the leader of the official opposition is Tony Wakeham he's there and then Minnie wants to talk about the federal minister of environment and climate change of course that's Stephen Gilbo don't go away welcome back to the program let us go to line number one good morning Frank you're on the air yes uh, Patty uh are we getting anything for the like the uh, grocery rebate? Uh, any money back from the government or anything now, or or they're not giving us on? There's no new rebate coming this year. Are you talking about, for instance, what they call the grocery store rebate? That was the one-time bump up in the GST. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's already come and gone. Oh, is that? Yep. So uh, when will, when will we get that then? That check went out, I think, on the 5th of July, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody who qualified for GST, there was no reapplication required. It was all based on your tax return from the year prior. So that grocery rebate, that's come and gone. No problem. Thanks, Frank. The connection there is not great. Is, Is Frank done? Frank, are you still there? Okay, so I think that was his basic question about a grocery rebate. And, of course, it was a so-called doubling of the GST. That's all it was. It wasn't, you know, people could spend it however they saw fit. But it was, once again, those 
political calculations associated with the demand and the need. And so they called it a grocery rebate, and so be it. And then, of course, you know, the thought with the carve-out of uh, carbon tax on home heating fuels, the Prime Minister said yesterday that there will be no uh, more carve-outs available. But there's a distinct school of thought that not only is this a real self-own and a self-inflicted wound for the Liberals, and really flies in the face of uh, most everything they've said about the carbon tax and its intention over the years, the people who were supporting it, environmentalists and what have you, they've had the wind knocked out of their sails. And yes, you know, very often when we talk about a tax and when the people are Canadians are polled, anything regarding tax, people want to pay less. That's just kind of just nature of the beast. Very seldom uh, inside of that conversation is anything to do with the climate incentive plan for the carbon tax rebate, basically, which comes out quarterly. Now, what I don't really firmly understand is how that has been impacted with this three-year pause on carbon tax associated with home heating fuels. Because as it stands today, quarterly, folks will get $164 for an individual, another uh, $82 for common law partners or your spouse, 41 bucks for children under the age of 19. And in a single parent family, uh, to, I think it was 82 bucks once again for the first child. So has that number now changed? I don't know. It's something that we're putting forward to the federal department to find out because there's lots of questions. Whether it be that carbon tax implication and free heat pumps, is it for individual homeowners or can it also be associated with a business that's heated by home heating oils? We don't know, but we're trying to find out. And ultimately, will that carbon tax rebate be implicated or reduced because of this three-year carve-out. We'll have to find out. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port Report. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Just wanted to uh, touch base after yesterday's fall fiscal update. Sure. And uh, talk about some of the things that uh, we see as uh, potential issues here in this whole uh, update that the uh, minister provided yesterday. And I guess I'll start off with the uh, the first one being the... Uh, indication that they're going to put more money into a future fund but in order to do that they're going to actually borrow the money which as i have said yesterday seems to me the same thing as taking an advance on your credit card to open up a savings account I get the feel-good optics. I mean, we were talking years ago about the fact that there wasn't something like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, like the Alberta Heritage Fund, but that's only when a surplus is in place. And when it's not, I just don't understand even the rationale. I'm sure it feels good for the third time to put money in the future fund, but if we're borrowing the money and it's more expensive to borrow now than it was when they even instigated this particular fund, I don't understand the rationale, period, to be honest. No, and that, that's exactly the point. The point is we all agree with the concept of a future fund. And we all agree that when we run surpluses, instead of just spending that money, we should be putting some of it away for future generations. And that's the whole concept of a future fund. But to borrow money to put in a future fund at a time when interest rates are high, I, I don't understand the logic in that uh, other than uh, they want to give themselves some credit for being able to say they've established a future fund. The other thing, of course, that uh, rings out here was the uh, was the housing starts and how significantly down housing starts are, down by 34%. It's pretty alarming. And, and what they pointed out was due to higher interest rates and cost of materials. 
and of course cost of materials. One of the challenges with the cost of materials into Newfoundland and Labrador has been shipping costs. And shipping costs are up uh, in part uh, because of carbon tax and the, and the impact that that's having on fuel prices. And and so when we talk about carbon tax and, and the fact that there is no evidence that carbon tax has actually reduced Canada's carbon emissions, but we have lots of evidence about how it's impacting people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah. I mean, even when the Bank of Canada has been chiming in now on carbon tax and what that means for behavior adjustment, emission control, and of course, when we measure emissions, we also have to prorate it for population because people will point to the fact, like in BC, where there's been a carbon tax for quite a long time, their emissions haven't grown as per population growth. They have grown, but so has the population, and it hasn't blistered their economy, to say the very least. So, you know, we're always trying to get a firm grasp on exactly what it means. The Bank of Canada, even when we talk about carbon tax and the implication on groceries, they say it's much lower than it feels to me as the person who shops on behalf of our family. Before we go any further on that, Tony, remind me what the Future Fund can actually be used for. I remember them saying exceptional circumstances, but wasn't one of the other available uses to simply pay down debt? Well, that's exactly what they what they talk about. They talk about paying down future debt. So we're borrowing money to put into a Future Fund account so that we can pay down the money we borrow at a later date. Now... The logic of all of that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And again, based on interest rates, it's one thing to borrow at 1% and earn and earn uh, income at 5 or 6 or 8%, uh, so you're actually growing your money. But there's no proof that that's actually happening. And again, to, to simply say, just because you want to establish a future fund and put money in there to say you're going to pay down future debt with that money, when you're borrowing the money in the first place, I'm, I'm not getting the logic in that. Me neither. I anticipate we'll have some sort of uh, conversation with Minister Cody or the Premier. We haven't talked to either or in quite a long time, but I guess with the update and the questions that it poses, fair enough. And even in the housing starts world, if you add the 899 forecast for this year, 34.8% drop off from last year, contrast that with the Mortgage Corp forecast of needing 60,000 units, it's not going to just be about carbon tax either. I mean, even inside of all of those incentive plans and the five-point plan, I don't think we've actually had any either, either cocktail napkin math or actual legitimate math about the value of the product or the price point of the product on the other end upon completion. Like, you can build all the houses you want that will hit the market at three ninety nine, but that's not what's really in need here. We've got lots of those. Yeah, the challenge is we've had no housing strategy in this province now for more than eight, for eight years. I mean, there, there was an announcement back in 2017, for example, that they were going to implement a housing strategy that year. And here we are in 2023, and they roll out a plan this week or last week, and it's led to, and it's been total confusion about exactly they don't even know themselves what's in their plan you know they have different ministers and the premier and the deputy premier standing up and talking about all the new houses they built the 750 uh, new homes they constructed and we find out it's only been 11 it's not just the minister of housing that was saying this it's the deputy premier and others i mean in video scripted video the deputy premier is up talking about 750 new homes that were built so how does this happen how do they not know exactly what's happening in the housing market in Newfoundland and Labrador? 
add to it, even because it's not necessarily what we need, but we're always going to have some sort of need in emergency shelters. Even just the story of someone being moved from a tent to an emergency shelter to find out that we didn't even know that it hadn't been inspected and was up to your eyeballs and rodent feces and mold and all the rest of it. There's just something distinctly missing here. I don't know if it's left-hand, right-hand disconnect, but, I mean, on all of these fronts, it's just so strange. 750 is not 11. 11 is not 750. Inspections to be done after the fact is exactly the antithesis of what an inspection is uh, supposed to do. It's supposed to make sure the place is clean, as opposed to inspection when we know it's dirty, (laughs) and then we send in the cleaners. I mean, I uh, I don't know. I'd ask the same question of the Minister of Housing or the Deputy Premier. Would you move into a rented apartment before inspecting it? Would you actually turn around and move into an apartment or a house and pay rent without first inspecting it to see what it looked like and see what before you actually did that? They did not do that, but instead they turn around and suggest that others, it's okay for others. That's just not good enough. There's a breakdown here, and that needs to be the fundamental principle. If you're going to offer up housing for somebody, then you better send in somebody to review what those conditions are before you actually put someone in it. That should be a fundamental principle. I suppose, yes. I mean, hard to argue that point. Paddy, the other thing that I uh, mentioned yesterday in question period was the upper Churchill contract and and the need, the need for full disclosure, the need for a debate and public accountability. I mean, we've gone through the Justice LeBlanc inquiry, cost us millions of dollars to do it. And one of the recommendations coming out of that inquiry was that any deal would be referred to an independent panel of experts for robust review, assessment, analysis. All of that was in Justice LeBlanc's recommendations. The Upper Churchill and that renegotiation is one of the most significant things that will happen in this province. And it has impacts, not just today, but on next generations. And it's very, very important that we get this right. And the best way to ensure that is simply not to turn around for government to say, we've signed a deal, trust us. It's to open it up for full accountability. And that's what I was calling for yesterday in the House. And unfortunately, I didn't get an answer to that question. What exactly do you want to see? So is it the case when they arrive at whatever they'll call a tentative deal or an MOU before final ink to paper, that's when the debate takes place? Because I don't think anybody, regardless if you're an opposition party member or anyone else, we don't and can't see the negotiations compromised. So is that what you're looking for, is when the deal is ready to be struck, then we have the debate? Absolutely, Patty. What I'm talking about is that we know there's a committee in place now that's negotiating. We don't know exactly what they're negotiating. That's all been done behind closed doors. But when it comes time, before that ink is signed on that deal, that's when we need to have that brought to a to that committee that I talked about, that independent panel of experts, that debate in the House of Assembly. Let's talk about exactly what we're about to sign. And let's get that out there for people. Because in the past, you and I both know what normally happens is a government will turn around, sign a deal like this, and then they'll say, oh, we need to go to the polls now. We need a mandate from the people in order to implement this deal after it's already been signed. That's nothing but politics. And it's time we stopped that. It's time we talked about making these things because it's about the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's about future generations. So let's not make this about simply the next election. Let's make it about the next generation. And I think in order to do that, we need to get this right. And it doesn't matter what political party you're part of. We all should have the same interest in seeing this deal 
done the best deal that we can get for Newfoundland and Labrador. I would imagine that they're discussing all of the issues that I speak to, and I probably forget some of them anyway, whether it be looking at the deal, how it was constructed since uh, 69, uh, how it's going to look in the next 17 years, or how it looks in 2041. I guess every single thing is on the table, but not even you know a daily update about who said what in a negotiation. Nobody needs or expects that, but we've even just struck our own provincial committee, I think with Carl Smith and Jennifer Williams and a couple other folks about what 2041 means. I think that would be a helpful, you know, Upper Churchill 101, just so that when the deal is brought forward, and hopefully as you request a debate on the floor of the House of Assembly, at least then we'll know what we're actually talking about. Because for some people, they think, well, that's it, 2041, we'll be able to pave all the roads with gold, when it's probably not the case. So even just to know exactly what 2041 means might give people a bit of a head start to understand the merits of a deal when it gets brought forward. Because at this moment, I think there's a lot of gray areas there, a lot of misconception about what 2041 actually means. So, I, And I don't think that compromises negotiations, but I think it'd be a nice refresher for those of us who want to follow along and be able to evaluate the merits or the veracity of a deal. Absolutely, and it's also about what future hydroelectricity deals are linked into this particular one. Is Gala Island part of it? Is Muskrat Falls part of it? What are we talking about here when we're talking about these negotiations? What exactly it is that we're negotiating? And there's lots of things that could be uh, explained to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador without compromising any of the discussions that are happening. Uh, well, if you read between the lines about the commentary coming from Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec, both Muskrat and Gull are somehow intertwined inside of this. Premier Legault loves talking about Gull Island. He really does. So I would imagine, just based on what he says, even with my reasonable French, is that it's somehow involved. And to what extent and to what level, what type of partnership or hierarchy would be established if and when that 2,225 megawatts is brought to the market remains to be seen. But all good questions. Anything else quickly, Tony? Well, just that. They expressed the disappointment in exactly what you said. It's very disappointing that the people in Newfoundland and Labrador have to try to get their updates on the negotiations from the Premier of Quebec when he's talking about things like that. And that's unfortunate that that's happening. And I, of course, take with a grain of salt. He's also playing a pretty significant game politically here too. So his political fortunes are somehow attached to this as well. So I I think political commentary from people like Legault, and I, I suppose with all due respect, all politicians, because we got to sift through agendas to get to the brass tacks about what it actually means. And that wasn't offered as an insult. That's just how I read politics. No, no but I will, I will say right now, let's take the politics out of this. Let's not make this about politicians. Let's make it about the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's not make it about the next election election. Let's make it about the next generation and let's open it up and make sure that we have that open, frank discussion. Appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony Wakeham is the member for Stephenville Port of Port and the leader of the official opposition. Time for a break. When we get back, Derek wants to talk about surgery wait times. We'll talk about the federal minister of uh, environment and climate change. And the mayor of Whitburn, Hilda Whalen, wants to chime in on the conversation I guess we had with Dr. Debbie Kelly this morning about pharmacy-based sexual health service programs. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Derek, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I'm just wondering, with the new extra surgeries that are being performed, performed across all, just how they're making out with it. Is there an update on how many have been done? Are we talking about the uh, hip and joint, uh, hip and knee replacements? Yes, yes. Yeah, there was an update number given there a few weeks ago. I don't have it off the top of my head, but they're going to add you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 per year at these off-sites, whether it be St. Anthony and Carbonair, is it, is the other site? So, yeah, yeah. There, there are a bunch of additional surgeries being done. How that's chipping away at the backlog? 
I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but there is an update. I can find it probably very quickly during the news. Okay, perfect. They're also talking about the fact that, you know, even if we are doing these things, the number of people based on, you know, unfortunately, the aging demographic, as quick as we do one, one and a half people come forward who need another one. So I don't know how quickly that's going to deal with the backlog, which is significant, but I'll find those numbers because that's a good uh, question, Derek. I can't remember off the top of my head. All right, thank you. No problem at all. I'll see what I can find out. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. They've talked about, you know, when the the sites like St. Anthony, for instance, are at maximum capacity. It certainly will be beneficial. And I guess, you know, some of the thought process behind that, it's not necessarily all 100% about backlog. It's also about access, you know, proximity to this type of procedure. So if you're living in and around St. Anthony, you're living in Roddington by the arm, or you're living in Lab West, the ability to get that procedure done in St. Anthony is hugely beneficial. As a to all of the lead time, wait time, cost associated with having to come into the Health Sciences Center to get it done. So it's not only about the backlog, it's also about access. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Minnie. You're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Uh, You're a stranger? Uh, yes, it's been a while. How are you? Good. I just wanted to say, Patty, I've heard David on Power and Politics a few times um, say that the MPs in Newfoundland don't seem to have much time for Minister Gibol, right? And uh, I just wondered if you knew that Mr. Gibol actually, he came from Greenpeace. That's where, when he came into the government, that's where he came from, Greenpeace. So I would think that the MPs of Newfoundland probably uh, would have more to not, they certainly would remember what Greenpeace did for sure. But I wondered why that the Prime Minister would put him into the environment, because in my opinion, I don't know how you feel, but I think he's very dogmatic about getting, uh, like, his, his times. He started off, like, climate change at 2050. Then he moved to 2035. You're talking about the net zero emissions yeah. grid? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then now he's down to, he's talking about 2030. But I don't think, uh, Patty, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's going to be possible to 2030. You're not going to get everything, like electric cars and all this stuff, set up for 2030 anyway, right? So I got a feeling, I don't know, but I do have a feeling that he's probably going to be uh, shuffled out of his position and into another one. Because the one that wasn't behind what they did last week uh, down in Atlantic Canada was definitely not him. Because I'll tell you, when I saw his face, and he even said this not wouldn't have been my first choice, he wasn't very happy about it, right? And he also, uh, Patty, made the comment that uh, uh, he wouldn't go along with any other carve-outs, he said. So he sort of laid it on the line that if they tried to do it somewhere else, he'd, he'd quit, right? I think he's so committed to that and the carbon tax that uh, I do believe that... Uh, um, 
granddaddy will probably end up getting shuffled out of his uh, post, right, into another one now, but not the, not the environment, right? Maybe, but regardless of what people think about Minister Gilbo and his ideology and his background, it makes sense to me to have someone with that sort of informed position, whether people agree with it or not. I mean, it makes more sense to have him in that job than it would be to have an oil industry executive, for instance. Oh, yeah. So no, I mean, The only thing is, I think, Patty, that with, uh, with uh, him, he would like to have the oil stopped in 30, up to 2030 if he had his way. But, I mean, you've got Newfoundland with the oil industry. You have uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta with oil industries. Now, they're not going to go along with 2030. They may very well go along with 2050, but they're not going to go along with it. And uh, the other day you had the Supreme Court come down and threw out one of the planks of his, his things. So you got to be realistic. The, the problem I've seen with the carbon tax is that they were too dogmatic on the, the carbon tax and putting it on heating fuel and that kind of stuff. They didn't think that we could end up having a, uh, well, we're supposed to be in a recession now, according to what they said yesterday, a light recession, but a recession nevertheless. That you had all that, you had people that were pretty well. I mean, I know seniors down here can't even go and buy food. And uh, all of a sudden, they're faced with having to pay a huge carbon tax. And what a lot of people didn't know, Patty, is that the carbon tax is not as high as it, it could go yet. I think the carbon tax is supposed to go over $200, isn't Well, I mean, if they didn't know or they don't know, then they just weren't paying attention. No, and I was certainly paying attention. But if you if you only got it at 60-something now and it's gone up to $200, can you imagine, and you still got that on your heating fuel, can you imagine how much you would be paying, though, at the, at 200 instead of 60 See, I think that, uh, and, and uh, they were so hell-bent, not, nothing was going to be touched. Never going to touch it. Never gets touched. Now, all of a sudden, they've gone in and they've touched it, right? So you can imagine now, I think they're going to have to start carving out for other places because their MPs are going to get up arms. So they just open the door crack, but that's just enough, right? That's how I feel, Patty. I might be all wrong. No, I mean, your opinion is, is your opinion. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Look, I said also that I thought Trudeau <laughs> would resign uh, in fall, but that was wrong about that, so I could be wrong about this too, right? The Prime Minister is, I think, hanging on by thread, even with his own caucus. You know, I we're not in the room, and they're all pretty tight-lipped. But there's no question that the Prime Minister is best before and the shine has rubbed off, and I don't think he's helping his party at this point in time. There'll still be Trudeau supporters out there. That's just the way the world works. Oh, absolutely. I was uh, in 2015, you know, uh, when everybody else, I guess you could say, was too. But uh, I think when you're in there, Patty, eight and nine years, ten years, I think the shine do wear off no matter who you are, right? And I would have thought that because he's that low in the polls that he would have said, well, you know, the chance of me getting elected is not going to be good. So 
I think I'll just get out, you know, and let someone else take over. And, I mean, that's not saying he can't come back, because he he certainly can. I've seen him come back before, right? Well, yes, and I've got to get to the news, but yes. the carbon tax that the federal Liberals had in place when they went back to the polls uh, in the last federal election, that's the, uh, they campaigned on it. I mean, we knew exactly what it was. At that time, we did indeed have our own provincial scheme, but we knew that was going to come up for renegotiation. That scheme had the money flowing in the carbon tax to the province. It was not associated with home heating fuels. But the Liberals won a minority parliament, and th- that plan was right there for all to see. Yeah, and I, th- I think, Patty, it will come back, too. That's the sad part about it, because I, don't, I think the three years is get past the election. But uh, I had, uh, the other day... I was looking, I'll say it pretty fast now because I know it's news time. On, on uh, CTV the other day, on the bottom, you know, the news rolls out. Liberal Insider says uh, carbon tax will be gone for Liberals before the next election. Uh, that's someone's so opinion. I'm wondering, do you think that that's a possibility? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I appreciate the time, Minnie. Hope you're well. Yeah, and, and it's nice talking to you, Patty. You too. You take good care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take uh, time for the news. When we come back, Mayor Hilda Whalen from Whitburn is in the queue. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mayor Hilda Whalen. You're on the air. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> Same to you. No, I was calling in uh, regards to the uh, memorial there. They're setting up uh, for sexually transmitted diseases, etc. And I heard her say, well, most will be done in the rural areas by pharmacies. And I stopped and I said, is she really for real? I mean, most of our pharmacies are about as big as my bathroom, not an extra room. There's also a store where the general public are roaming around. So I'm wondering, are they they going to renovate every pharmacy in rural Newfoundland to, to put an actual clinic site there? Uh we don't need a clinic site necessarily, but I mean, access to prevention and treatment medication for a sexually transmitted infections just sounds like a smart thing, doesn't it? As opposed to, for instance, if I'm, if I'm in Whitburn, to have to travel to St. John's for something like that? I, 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 I don't see the downside. Absolutely. In uh, prevention, yes. But in treatment of, uh, that, you know, that would take, uh, to me as a doctor, should be done in a private setting. But after your initial diagnosis, treatment medications would be the same if I was going in to get an antibiotic or my heart pills Absolutely. or my blood pressure pills. So it would simply be just passing a piece of paper across the counter and getting your prescription filled. Absolutely. But she said that the, that the testing, that they're looking at the testing and and and. and the clinic type testing, not just going in and getting another, uh, getting another bunch of pills or something. It's, it's to me, it's uh, unless they're going to, like you say, set up each pharmacy with a different room. I mean, most of these people in these pharmacies are next door neighbor. You know, it's, it's, 
and they're they're going to do the testing. Not the testing. I I I I don't have a problem with preventative or the medication of, but the testing of. I wonder how much different it would be if you say, for instance, going to the pharmacy to get your flu shot or to get your COVID vaccine or the like, because we're doing that without any sort of real big clinical setting. Well, a flu shot or a COVID shot is not uh, some private matter that you don't want. I mean, you don't care who sees you getting the flu shot or the COVID shot. There's a difference. I suppose. I think people just want to identify whether or not they're carrying something that could be asymptomatic but has huge health implications down the line. So you you say there's a sense of embarrassment with having blood drawn to be diagnosed with something? Then again, who at a pharmacy is qualified to draw that blood even? It all comes back to uh, something that you could go into your family doctor, get an appointment, go in, get a test. And like you say, it could require a blood test, whatever. Pharmacies aren't set up for that. I guess that's part of the research that's being done. This is just starting. This is a research grant, not a business model. Research, just research. Well, that's what this is. When they did, they did one with methadone, and you know, Patty, that this started the overpass. You better not need it. So, uh, I'm I'm just saying that if they're doing, if it's just. An investigation, fine, but come to testing for uh, these things at, at a pharmacy in rural Newfoundland? No. So I'm just putting it out there. I hope she's listening. <laughs> sure. Now, I mean, it's a the grant is to look at how to improve access. If it's not going to work in one particular pharmacy, then that might be the reality that they eventually find out. But I would imagine, like, just so I have a clear understanding, you're saying that people would have privacy concerns with having a, some blood drawn at a pharmacy? Yes, because uh, if you go in for a shot now, if you're going in for a shot, you're going in for either COVID or, or uh, flu, whatever. If they have a clinic specifically set up for testing for sexual diseases or something that's private, and that's the only reason they use that, that clinic, then if I'm seen going there, then it, it, it's a small town. Yeah. So when they, when they have to keep that in mind when they do this, because some of these pharmacies, they only got walking room. There's only two people can stand abreast, and they better not be too, too heavy. I mean, they just don't have the sites. Just aren't there. I don't. I don't even see how they're going to do it, unless they step down out of that little area where they have their drugs and do it in the middle of the store. Because all these small pharmacies here, they're all stores. And there are people going around there all the time. It don't make sense. So I'm not, yeah. I just just keep putting it out there. Keep that in mind when you're developing something like this. Fair enough. I appreciate the time, Mary Whale, and thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the entire exercise is to examine whether or not the gaps in the system can be backfilled by a pharmacy and a pharmacist. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, line number three. Tina, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay. How about you? 
hanging in there. Today we're talking about shelters and what Ben lived through when he was at uh, 150 La Merchant Road. So I just wanted to kind of share his experience so people get an accurate idea of what happens in the shelters. Not all shelters, but obviously I can only speak to Ben's experience and this particular shelter. So I have a list of the things that happened with Ben. Um, one of the things was overcrowding in the situation where they would have like nine men to a single room in cots. And Ben used to tell me when the the uh, fire marshal came, they used to remove the cots because there were so many people in there. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, theft of their personal belongings. Every time they turn around, their things were stolen. Um, the other is drug use on premises. Even when I complained and lodged complaints to the owner, um, it still continued. It might stop for a day or two, but then, you know, they were smoking crack, um, doing weed and injections right there in the driveway. So, um, and also, like, the types of things that occurred there. My son, Ben, um, witnessed someone who had gone to the Waterford the night before. And when Ben found him on uh, Saturday morning, he was hanging from the side of the building. So these are some of the atrocities that happened there. And um, I had, nobody was really taking care of Ben. At one point I picked him up, he had over 50 injection sites in his legs and could hardly walk. Like he wasn't seen by social services people. He wasn't helped. I had to finally get him to um, get a prescription from a doctor on the West Coast who was willing to help, but nobody else was uh, looking out for him. And, you know, in a state of um, mental health issues, anosognosia, addiction, like he's, he was a danger to himself, not capable of taking care of himself. And from what I understood, there was people who did co go into the shelter, social services and stuff, but there was definitely nobody keeping an eye on Ben because he was malnutritioned and he had all kinds of health issues. Um, I mean, he was he was six foot six and he was like 110 pounds when he passed away. So that's a list of a few things. There's a, a lot more, but... Um, you know, they, they have mandatory expulsion out of the um, shelters from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and get one meal a day. So these people who can't even get their identifications together, they can't get their food together, they can't get their lives together. They're so, so, so sick that it's very difficult. Why was Ben in a shelter? Ben, ben had addiction and um, undiagnosed. He went to, at 15, he smoked pot. And um, as soon as that happened, he basically had no cause and effect. I remember getting him from school and they said that he had pot on the premises. And Ben and I went to the police officer, police station and the police officer looked at me and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you have, you know, way more bigger problems than your son smoking pot. It's, uh, you know, he's got no cause and effect. Uh, he, he's not, he, his brain just shut down, which happens to, you know, a certain percentage of people 
who smoke weed. Yeah, I'm not, not I'm not asking about the implications of his drug use, but how and yeah. why did he find himself in a shelter as opposed to a hospital or at home or whatever, what have you? In his safe home, we tried to get him into hospital many, many times, but because of the privacy law and Ben's state of mind was that he wasn't sick. This is what I was trying to tell you about anosognosia. Like if you ask Ben, do you have an issue or a problem, he would just always say, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. So he wasn't capable of self-reflecting. That happens to 40% of people with bipolar, which is what we suspected Ben had because we have bipolar in our family and also in his dad's side of the family, so on both sides. So it's highly likely that he had that, but he was never even seen uh, to be able to be diagnosed. And they don't diagnose bipolar till sometimes till you're in your 30s. So there's no diagnosis, there's no early intervention, and there's no help for somebody who, I mean, that is the result of why most people are homeless is because they don't believe they have an illness, even if they have drug-induced anosognosia, they still cannot self-reflect. They don't have cause and effect. And he didn't want to be at home, for instance? No, he could, Ben came home when it was really, really tough. I even moved downtown to be close to Ben and chase after him every day and help make sure he got food and everything. And he always knew that he had a home to come to, but he was, Ben went where drugs were, and drugs were in shelters. It's just all so sad. And the shelter system, as much as we wish we didn't need it, we always will for some members of society, it just has to be much better. The the setting of the minimum standards is a good place to begin because the fact that we don't even have them is outrageous. So hopefully that gets attended to. I'll give you the final word, Tina, before we take our final break of the morning. Yeah, well, whoever is implementing the standards should, certainly shouldn't be the people who are actually, you know, providing drug den shelters. It should be people, independent people with lived experience who know that bags need to be checked. Drugs should never be permitted on the premises and that there should be a continuous place of accountability and care for the people there. A hundred percent. I appreciate the time, Tina. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for the call. My Bye-bye. pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. We're going to talk about the exemption that was afforded to people that have unused rental units now that's going away there's some 700 people have been given a letter say it's either paid double the water tax or these certain renovations removing the range cable and uh putting uh, access doors in doesn't make sense to me board three counselor jamie korab after this Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, War 3 Councillor, City of St. John's, Jamie Korab. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's bad. Thanks. How about you? Oh, I've had better mornings, but uh, dealing through it. So this issue about people losing their water tax exemption, I guess the basic question is why? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a bit of backstory. Uh, so basically in May 2023, council agreed with the staff recommendation uh, for the removal of the water tax exemption for a subsidiary units or uh, an apartment. Uh, there was a few reasons. Uh, when the exemption was initially implemented, it was only intended for granny flats, uh, granny flats and in-law suites. So over the past couple of decades, that exemption has grown beyond what was originally encompassed, and that's created some issues. So, you know, basically the city doesn't have the ability to verify whether the apartment are being rented or not, and we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, and we're also managing high volume of retroactive requests, which is challenging, and it is tough for staff to confirm occupancy. Like I said, we can get to that in a second. But the biggest part of this was uh, upon legal review, it was determined that under the current legislation, and that's the legislation under the uh, St. John's Municipal Taxation Act, uh, that it doesn't permit us 
to provide an exemption for water tax. So it's illegal to do so. As there are no provisions under that legislation to provide the exemption, um, it wouldn't be valid. So therefore, it's determined that the city can no longer exempt it. So I, I know your, your past listener caller uh, a little while ago who I have talked to a couple times. Um, you know, part of it, I think the nail on the head might have been the abuse of it because, like anything, it was abused by some people. But I think from staff's perspective, it more came down to it being actually illegal under the act. And I'll be, you know, transparent. I did vote for this. Or I did agree with this, I should say, back in May. But after talking to 30 plus people and seeing how it's impacted some people and whatnot, I no longer agree with it. I, I believe myself and Council originally had many chats where I was in the same mindset. But as it sits now, uh, you know, the will of council is to leave what they're planning in place, and that's kind of where we sit where we're at now. Because, you know, when people are abusing the system, those who are abusing it need to be taken to task, and whether it be retro fines or whatever the case may be. But for someone like this gentleman who called this morning, I mean, for 13, 14, 15 years, it's simply been a place where he and his wife store stuff. It should be a way to be able to validate that, okay, it's not a problem. And it's not about losing out on taxes because taxes should not be applied. In addition to that, amendments to accompany the reality of life and to understand the concerns is also available, right? Yeah, I, I think on your first part, if it was just about taking them to task and proving people that were cheating it, I think the majority of council, if not all council, could get on board with that. You know, there are challenges, like I said, you know, you could check the apartment one day, the next day it's rented. There's a number of, there's a ways you can do that, yes. I think what it came down to for, and I can't speak for the rest of council, is that it, it is actually illegal under the Act. And I guess the, the kind of dig into that a little is, you know, just a bit honest, you know, with the city regulations and the National Building Code, all properties with a second unit are classified as having two water units uh, if it's developed. And it's it's not black and white because I had one resident say, well, what if I wanted to put a, a, an oven in my rec room? Is that not allowed? Are you going to charge me a water tax? Well, it's it's not as cut and dry, but, you know, the things they do look at are is the cooking area in that second unit. It does have a kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, living room. And it's been tested in court and we went the cities went to court over the years and it was basically dictated that if it's a second unit if you had all these things so if it's deemed that it's a second unit under again the that act the taxation act we legally have to charge a second unit i'm, I'm not saying it's fair i don't agree with it but you know it's it's what's the legit the provincial legislation we're governed by is kind of what we had to follow what does removing the range cable mean is it simply you know open up the junction box and cut it back and cap it or what actually has to be done there because that can be all the way from a master electrician with significant work to very fundamentals yeah there's two parts of this so my understanding is that the cable or the core doesn't have to be fully removed it's disconnected at the panel box and then you're actually plug removed where your range would have been or your stove and then that kept over with one of those uh, plates uh, that's that so when i voted for this originally or again i agree with this originally back in may i was of the mindset okay if that's all people got to do and it could have been a misunderstanding on my part but I i'm okay with that but as, as i've talked to 30 odd people for some people yes it's as simple as that uh, some of the residents i spoke to don't have uh, access to the departments now you're talking bringing in a contractor uh, to come in and two, three thousand dollars to put an entrance in there, and you know every resident, you know they had a different story, and I believe them. I don't, I don't know what the story is that, that it's not true, but I had a different situation, I should say, that this isn't as simple as having an electrician in for four or five hundred dollars to disconnect the range cable. It was thousands of dollars for some, and you know for some residents, you know they were like, I don't have the money to get an electrician to do this. 
and I don't have the money to pay the extra, you know, 600 odd for the second water tax. So it's put some residents in a, you know, a tough predicament. And as well, in my opinion, you know, I know the other real or the other person that called in reference, reference that I was, a, you know, a real estate agent. There's no question it will affect property values, but also, you know, we're in a housing shortage. And, you know, if people are going to go now and to save the 760 bucks, if it's as simple as them just to have an electrician in to disconnect the, the cable, uh, they'll do that. Then they're no longer grandfathered in their two apartments. So if they go to sell in a year or two or three years time, whoever's purchasing would have to bring it up to current code. So there's a there's a lot of pieces of this that, uh, again, I don't agree with it now. I'd, I'd, I'd rather it stay in place. But, you know, the will of council right now is to to push on and charge people a second water tax. Uh, you've had the last word, uh, Councillor Korab. Thanks for this. Thanks. And last, Freddie, if anyone has any questions, tell them to give me a call. More than happy to. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.